Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Mormon Stories Podcast, LDS Discussions Edition. I am uh, your host for today, John DeLynn. It's March 1st, 2023, and today we are continuing our series on uh, Joseph Smith's uh, prophecies and revelations. Today we're going to be covering Joseph Smith's failed revelations. This is part of the LDS Discussion series which is uh, based on the good work of our dear friend Mike at LDSDiscussions.com. Mike has put together, um, I don't know, 50 to 100 really good essays. Uh, it's a wealth of information where Mike, as a convert, to, it is an adult convert to the Mormon church who learned about the problematic truth claims of the church and the problematic history of the church after he converted and, and married um, a Mormon woman and had children. Uh, wanted to dispassionately and from an evidence-based and a fact-based perspective uh, just analyze the Mormon church and its truth claims in history. And so we are now on episode 37 of this series here on Mormon Stories Podcast. And just as a reminder, you can um, either enjoy this series integrated into the weekly Mormon Stories Podcast and YouTube feed or you can find dedicated feeds for this series at uh, under the LDS Discussions brand, either on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And we have a YouTube channel um, on Mormon Stories Podcast YouTube channel. We have a playlist where you can just watch all these um, episodes in sequence. And so that's uh, what we're going to be doing today. And uh, we are super grateful to have with us Mike and Nemo in the studio. Mike, uh, why don't you say hi to our audience? Hey. hey, everybody. Good to be back for apparently number 37. So hopefully uh, this one will be, I think this will be a really fun one, actually. So this will be a good one for you to get a little bit of a refresher uh, from the first uh, two Revelation episodes and um, hopefully connect the dots from the earlier episodes in a way that will be a little more meaningful now that we've done so much of the the groundwork leading up to this. So glad to be back. Yeah. And you, you make a good point. We really, really do emphasize in these series that they build on each other. We're going to make constant references to past episodes. And so, uh, please consider if this is the first time you've stumbled on stop, go back to the very beginning, watch episodes one through 36 and, uh, 37 will be at least a little more valuable. And of course we have back with us in studio, actually remote uh, in our UK studio, Nemo. What's up, Nemo? Hi, Hi. You know, if you start this, like today, it will take you a month to get through all of them. So better get started. Yeah. Oh, you're saying yeah. if you do one a day, it'll one take a day, over a yeah. month. Yeah, it'll that's take a good over point. a month. Yeah. So crack on. And of course, Nemo is the, uh, the main voice on the Nemo the Mormon uh, YouTube channel that you should go subscribe to and check out. And of course, he's one of the leaders of the Brit Vengers, which is a group of UK uh, podcasters and YouTubers. So shout out, much love to yeah. the Brit Vengers. Anyway, glad glad to have you, Nemo. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. All right. So, Mike, uh, I guess it's time to jump in to today's episode. Yeah. Should we yep. go to it, the first slide? Yeah, we can go to the first one. Uh, we we originally had planned uh, last week's episode and, and this this episode to be kind of one, and then we, I think we realized it was best to split it, and so it works out well. So our first episode was kind of about the patterns and the threads you see in Joseph Smith's revelations and kind of what they could tell us about how Joseph Smith implemented revelation. And now this episode is going to look at Joseph Smith's revelations and prophecies that, that ultimately fail 
And so we wanted to start by just looking at what the Bible tells us about failed prophecies. And so, um, as we mentioned last week, we're not covering every single revelation has problems, but we want to look at some of the ones where we can really test the claims being made by Joseph Smith. And so, um, as, as Nemo said, if the first 36 episodes don't make it clear that Joseph Smith was not a prophet of God, um, I would like to think that failed prophecies would be really hard to ignore. And so this is from um, Deuteronomy 18, and it kind of discusses how we can know if it's a prophet of God or not. And it says, And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is a thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. And so you got to keep these two verses in mind as we look at these these um, different revelations and prophecies from Joseph, because it will allow us to know, like, is this someone who was a prophet of God that we should believe, um, which of course would lead us to continue potentially to believe um, that Russell Nelson is a prophet today, or is Joseph Smith speaking for himself and not for God? And therefore, there's no reason to think that, say, Russell Nelson today would be a prophet because if Joseph wasn't, Russell Nelson surely is not a prophet. So it's a really important topic. And obviously, it should be one um, because of the fact that we could test some of these claims being made by Joseph Smith um, that even a believing member can listen to, even if you ultimately want to choose to believe, as Russell Nelson would say. But you can acknowledge the fact that there are revelations and prophecies made by Joseph Smith that we can test that ultimately are not going to come to pass. There's at least two things that are kind of funny about that scripture for me. One is that um, it's kind of stating the obvious. It's like the stating the obvious department. It's it's basically saying if a prophet prophesies uh, about something and it doesn't come true, then he's not a prophet. <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, that's an important scripture that we need to have. Um, but, the, but the other thing is it, it says that if the prophecies don't come true, then you shall not be afraid of him. And I, I took a double take because I was expecting it to say something different, but then it, it must be speaking about being afraid as a virtue. Like it, you, sh, you know, you should be afraid of a prophet if he's a true prophet, but if he's not a true prophet, then there's no need to be afraid. I, I think that's what it's saying. What do you, how do you read it, Nemo? I read it as like, you don't need to be afraid of him in as just like, ignore him, move on. Don't, don't listen to him. Don't pay him any attention. Um, which is interesting because it's, you always look for, I think there's a pattern here of caveats. So there's always a caveat that will kind of save Joseph if, because if someone looks at one of his prophecies and goes, oh, well, he hasn't achieved it, then there's got to be that get out clause where he can be like, oh, well, but if that's the case, then. And I think what he's saying is, well, then you don't need to be afraid of him or anything he may say or, or anything he says because he's not a real prophet. So you can kind of just ignore him, um, which would be the best outcome for him rather than being actually taken to task over declaring being a false prophet if someone yeah. were that way inclined. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it, it feels like that Old Testament model of like, you need to fear God. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm not a big fan of that whole guilt, shame, no. fearing God kind of thing personally. But it's interesting. All right. So, Mike, let's go to the next slide. Yeah. And this is one that I think um, we're going to, if you've done the deep dive into Mormonism, you've heard about. But effectively, Joseph Smith is going to state that the second coming of the Lord will happen in 1891. And so, in February of 1835, Joseph Smith is in Kirtland, Ohio, and he says the following. Or I guess this is from the Minute Book because um, it's writing down what Joseph said in front of an audience. And it says, 
President Smith arose and stated the reason why this meeting was called. It was this. God had commanded it and it was made known to him by vision and by the Holy Spirit. He then gave a relation of some of the circumstances attending us while journeying to Zion, our trials, sufferings, etc. He said God had not designed all of this for nothing, but he had it in remembrance yet. And those who went to Zion with the determination to lay down their lives, if necessary, it was the will of God that they should be ordained to the ministry and go forth to prune the vineyard for the last time or the coming of the Lord, which was nigh even 56 years should wind up the scene. And so 56 years later from 1835 would be 1891, um, which obviously, as we know, did not include the second coming. And um, from an apologetic standpoint, they're going to say the revelation wasn't actually a failure because there's this caveat that if Joseph Smith should live live this long. Um, but this revelation from Minute Book One makes no requirement of Joseph Smith living until 1891. Um, the, as you could see, there, there's no mention of that. Um, and furthermore, and we're going to get into this in our f- uh, final revelation episode about patriarchal blessings. There are a lot of patriarchal blessings um, that make clear that Jesus would return during the lifetime of the early members. Um, and, and that really shows that Joseph Smith was teaching the early church um, that he was being told by God that we were literally in the latter days, like the final years. And so in this case, Joseph Smith is saying that that the basically the second coming happened in 1891. Obviously, that that just simply did not happen. Mm-hmm. Now, Mike, um, Mike or Nemo, some either of you may know this or may not. I've always associated that prophecy with the the first manifesto when I guess, was it Wilford Woodruff basically, uh, you know, basically made the statement that polygamy would cease, even though it didn't cease that basically the saints, you know, obviously the church was named the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, People have been waiting for Jesus's second coming for two millennia, but you know, the, the, the LDS church was a part of this millennialist tradition that the Jehovah's witnesses also emerged from so this this idea of Jesus coming soon was absolutely a crucial part of the founding of our church. And I always associated kind of the 1890-1891 manifesto as sort of like no, Joseph Joseph God implemented polygamy through Joseph and we're going to hold out until Jesus comes. But then if Jesus doesn't come by the time Joseph Smith prophesied, which was around 1890-1891, oh well, Maybe maybe Jesus isn't coming. Okay, we're going to give up polygamy. Can either of you speak to whether or not that's a meaningful association or whether that's just a, a total coincidence about that timing? It's it's an interesting association, certainly. Um, I'm just trying to think whether, because to, to give up almost on waiting for God, I wonder whether rather than that, it was more uh, to be a distraction from the fact that he hadn't turned up. Whereas they're like, oh, well, we've got this major doctrinal shift and we can tie it in with, you know, around this time when people are waiting for things to happen. Because people that were alive when Joseph Smith made this prophecy would have been alive then. They would have been old, but they would have been alive. Um, So, you know, you've got got those people that are going to be like, well, 1891 wasn't Jesus meant to come. And they can spin it, I'm sure, in many ways. It's, oh, well, it's the fulfillment of something. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I don't mean... Well, I mean, I think with the um, kind of the polygamy manifestos, those were really prompted by the fact that the government was on the door of the church, basically ready to take their their property, the te- you know, the temple, all that. So I, I tend to think it's more of a coincidence um, just because of the fact that I don't think 
you know, unless you want to really kind of give the um, kind of the, the the church speak of saying that God had the government knocking on the door at that very time so that they could then give this, you know, the manifesto at that time to line up with the date. But I mean, from a like a common sense standpoint, I think it just happened to be that they had no other choice. I mean, the church was holding out as long as they could to keep polygamy because it's the new and everlasting covenant. And so they waited until they really had no choice but to either remove it so the government would get off their back or risk losing all of their property um, to the feds. And so I, I don't think it had anything to do with that necessarily outside of just the fact that the timing lined up. Okay. All right. Well, if our viewers or listeners have any, you know, they almost always have information to add in the comments on YouTube. So we welcome any additional feedback or input on that. The only other thing I'll say is, as someone with the training in psychology, it was always mind blowing to me, whether it's Ruland Jeffs and Warren Jeffs prophesying the end of the world, you know, for 2002, when the Salt Lake City Olympics, you know, were going to be held, or whether it's the multiple times within the Jehovah's Witness movement, where an actual date was picked, and it came and went, and people remained believers. It's, it's a really fascinating and important psychological dynamic to note that oftentimes when a when a prophecy fails to happen if if the blame can be redirected at the members or if um if somehow the members can be convinced that god wanted the change oftentimes a failed prophecy reliably leads to an increase in faith by the members in instead of a decrease in faith and that's why the jehovah's witnesses have been able to survive and thrive after 3 4 or 5 failed you know, um, end of the world predictions over the past hundred, 150 years, check out my episodes with Lloyd Evans, the Jehovah's witness YouTuber. If you want to learn more about that. Um, I just, yep. I just had to mention that, but anyway, Joseph Smith had a failed prophecy about when Jesus was coming. I think that's your point, Mike. Yeah, no. And, and it's true. And, and we're going to actually near the end, there's a great example of what you just said about how people who lived during his time, you know, saw these revelations fail and believed even more strongly. And, and you see that today in, in 2023 as well. And um, when we talk about um, that period of time that the Mormon church was started, you know, the seven day Advent, the seventh day Adventists were basically formed on a false revelation. And I think they have more members in the church, the Mormon church does worldwide. So it just goes to show that like our, our brains are hardwired sometimes when we believe something's going to happen and it doesn't to find some excuse for it and to double down. So yeah, that's absolutely uh, a theme we're going to see really through these episodes on Revelation and and really through the uh, the episodes that we're going to do towards the end about doubts and, and spiritual witnesses and stuff where, you know, we, we are, we're wired to believe even against evidence that's right in front of our face. So it's it's an interesting and kind of depressing um, part of our, our human psyche. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's go to the next slide, which is the, a prophecy about the fall and overthrow of the U.S. government. Yeah, and this one is really one when I remember reading this one as I started doing the deep dive, I'd never heard of it until then. It's just it's one of those jaw-dropping ones for me. So this is 1843, and Joseph Smith is going to make the following prophecy about the future of the U.S. government if they did not grant um, the church uh, basically reparations for the wrongs that were committed against the members. And so he says, and this is from the history of the church, this is not like some third-hand account that's you know found 100 years later. Some It says, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel— Unless the United States redress the wrongs committed upon the saints in the state of Missouri and punish the crimes committed by her officers that in a few years, repeat, in a few years, 
the government will be utterly overthrown and wasted, and there will not be so much as a potsherd left for their wickedness in permitting the murder of men, women, and children, and the wholesale plunder and extermination of thousands of our citizens to go unpunished. And so that, I think, speaks for itself. And now there's going to be a second prophecy that was printed in the Millennial Star, which is a church-owned publication. Again, it says not anti-Mormon or anything like that. And it says, while discussing the petition to Congress, I prophesied by virtue of the holy priesthood vested in me and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if Congress will not hear our petition and grant us protection, they shall be broken up as a government and God shall damn them and there shall be nothing left of them, not even a grease spot. And these two revel- these two prophecies by Joseph Smith, um, the government did not provide any of the payments requested by Joseph Smith. Um, they did not give them protection, as we obviously know from Nauvoo and all that. And yet the government still stands almost 180 years later, arguably the most powerful government in the world. There is absolutely no way to reconcile the prophecies of Joseph Smith here with the history and to conclude this was anything but a completely failed prophecy. And the fact that Joseph Smith says in a few years, there is no way out because I know an apologetic in my mind immediately thought the apologetic response will be that's still to come. But Joseph Smith in a few years like this Uh, is I've got an apologetic response. All right, let's hear it. Yeah. So I know, I know where you're going. I know where you're going. Let's go. Let's hear it. The, go- the government is not the constitutional governing body of the United States of America. The government is the current sitting people in those positions like Secretary of State, like President, like et cetera, et cetera. That's weak sauce. So That's weak sauce. Those yeah. people, when they're gone, that government's been overthrown. You know what I'm saying? That's uh, that like a, that's yeah, like a British uh, interpretation of the word government, right? Because yeah, like if Tony Blair gets voted out, if Tony yeah. Blair gets voted out, they they call it a new government when a new mm-hmm. prime minister gets voted yeah. in, right? Yeah, like so, um, Rishi Sunak, the current prime minister of the UK, will say this government, and he's very much talking to the duration as which he is prime minister and the cabinet that he has assembled and all the ministers around him. So you want to push that perspective out there? That would be that would be from a British reading of it. That would be the the get out clause would be like, well, the moment that that four year term is over, then right. so in in that sense, if you were to look at it that way, it's an eminently yeah achievable prophecy it's not really a prophecy it's just saying the government will change in a few years and you're like oh cool all yeah, right but no not way. by any there's act zero. of god just by the fact no, that there are term limits by the dint yeah, of four-year like, terms yeah 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 i mean yeah. by that logic you could make a prophecy and say i prophesy in the name of the lord that my tree outside is going to lose its leaves and create new leaves next year like that's that's mm-hmm. the 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 apologetic i usually hear is people will say the government was overthrown during the civil war and my response is like no, it wasn't like it's it, it, I've heard that so many times where they'll say Joseph Smith was right. The Civil War happened. The government was thrown into complete chaos. But again, read what Joseph Smith wrote like that. It, that apologetic is so bad that you want to laugh at it, except people really do believe that that's an answer. And so that's where I really thought you were going. But I'll, like no. I said, well, that, that is just as bad no. to even to even make that claim when the government, the same government before the Civil War was the one that beat the Confederacy and, and remained. It's just so terrible apologetic. I mean, terrible apologetics. if we read the Revelation, not 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 be so much as a potsherd left, and there shall be nothing left of them, not even a grease spot. That's pretty yeah. definitive, right? It's yeah. very yeah. And that's why Nemos wouldn't work because you can't say there's nothing left, not even a grease spot. The, I mean, it, 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 Joseph Smith is not thinking in British political terms anyways. As we as we know from the Book of Mormon, it's very much American exceptionalism. And I don't mean that as a shot against America. I mean, I mean it as a shot that the Book of Mormon is clearly written by someone who loves and believes that America is the chosen mm-hmm. land. And so 
Joseph Smith is clearly referring to the yeah. basically the structure of the U.S. government. And maybe we'll get into this in our, our, our later episodes. But remember that at around this time, Joseph Smith is, is starting the Council of 50. He's voted king of the world. They believe that they're creating a structure of like a theocratic government that's going to replace the U.S. government. This just shows that Joseph Smith at this point is kind of getting um, a little bit too big for, you know, he's getting a little bit too, uh, too confident in himself. And I think that you can now see that he's just... I mean, he's just making stuff up that is very testable in 2023. And yes, in every possible way here, Joseph Smith shows that he's not speaking for God or God, as I mentioned in the last episode, is so powerless that can't that God can actually fulfill his his prophecies to his prophets, which we talked about last episode, because the God of Mormonism is one of the most powerless characters you're going to see in religion because of all of the um, different um promises that are made, uh, especially as we're going to talk about even today and the fact that they never happen. Yeah. So then you have to say, well, are these, are the people that claim to speak for God making it up, which is what I would obviously go with, or is God so powerless that he's going to tell people he's going to do stuff and then just kind of, you know, duck off to the side when, when it doesn't happen. Mm. So, and if you, it's if a you bad do come across, choice. if you come across someone who makes the kind of apologetic argument that I just tried to make, um, then you can very swiftly accuse them of presentism. Um, yeah. which, is the, which is normal apologist, apologetics 101 is to accuse someone of presentism. But actually that sort of apologetic would be by definition presentism because you would be judging Joseph Smith's statement by my modern understanding of the term government and my foreign understanding to him of the term government. So, oh, yeah, I mean, so yeah. yeah, so Mike and Nemo, I was going to offer a different, slightly different uh, apologetic. And that's sort of a more progressive or liberal Mormon apologetic that, you know, I, well, it's even based in the, in the you, you'll find these quotes by like Brigham Young or others where it's like, well, it's, if you know, you have to say, thus saith the Lord. If you're a prophet, you have to say, thus saith the Lord, or it's just an opinion. Or you've got some quote from Brigham Young or others saying, you know, a, 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 a prophecy only counts as a prophecy when the prophet is speaking as such. But when he's speaking as a man, it's not a prophecy. Um, and then another, and another, another sort of derivative of that is, well, okay, maybe Joseph Smith said it, but it was never canonized. It was never incorporated into the Doctrine and Covenants. And, uh, you know, and this is kind of how the church is currently seeming to, um, you know, seeming to characterize how we can know what a true prophecy is or true doctrine, you know, like the proclamation on the family. It's not, it hasn't been voted on by the first presidency and the quorum of the 12, all the members voted on it. And then it's added to the canon canon. And so I guess that they've over time put up these kind of barriers to say that prophets are still allowed to speak as men. Sometimes they're speaking as men. Sometimes they're speaking as prophets. We can't always know, um, when they're speaking as which, unless the first presidency, the quorum of the 12, the full membership all vote on it and it's added to the scriptures. And then, then you can, then it qualifies as prophecy such that then you can decide whether or not it's a failed um, prophecy. Now, do you guys so have, have, have a response to that? Yeah, I mean, then it doesn't matter if he says, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel, or that I prophesied by virtue of the holy priesthood vested in me and in the name of the Lord nope. Jesus Christ. No, nope, because it, it wasn't canonized, say, bro. The Lord. It wasn't right. canonized, my bro. My bad. <laughs> okay, so 
So, so two things. One is here. Nemo just answered your first one. Joseph Smith here. He's not just being like, I'm saying, I'm saying this name of Jesus Christ. He's like, I'm saying this with the power of the priesthood in the name of the God of Israel. I mean, like he's going full out. So that's number one. He absolutely is, is without any question saying, I am saying this as the one person who can speak for God. This, this is happening. That's part one. And part two is a very simple fact. If you want to make these, uh, the, the more progressive, I would actually argue apologetic because it's not progressive. It's, it's trying to cover up a problem, which is to say that when these things don't come to pass, it's simply because it wasn't canonized. Then why should any person watch a minute of general conference? Because everything those people say is just the opinion of men until the church votes on it. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't care what Russell Nelson says until it's canonized, because until then, it's just the mind of a 97-year-old man who's been wrong about a lot of things throughout his lifetime and, and made up a lot of stories, which we do need to do an episode on. So my point is, if if we can't take their word as the word of God until it's voted on by the church, then I'm not going to listen to a word they say until it's voted on, because it's, it's completely pointless until then anyways. It's like it's like reading the rough draft of a script, which, which is going to change anyways. So what's the point? So I guess my apologize, my response is, because you're right, those are very common apologetics is if you're going to apply that logic that we can't really take it as a prophecy until it's voted on and canonized, then you have to apply it to 2023 and say that every word out of the mouths of, you know, Russell Nelson, Dallin Oaks is meaningless until it's voted on. So why should we bother giving them any attention? Yeah. Nemo, anything you want to add? No. Amen. That is the way it works. If that is the line of thinking that you want to go down. Yep. It's just because pick, pick a lane and stay in it. And so if you want to say that it has to be canonized, that's fine. But every word Russell Nelson says, you know, in April general conference means nothing until it's voted on. But if you also want to say, follow the prophet and listen to what he says in April, then you can't say, don't listen to what Joseph Smith said in 1843, because we didn't vote on it. When we all know that Joseph Smith is leaving no room that that is not coming, at least from his perspective, it's coming directly from God through him as a prophecy to the world, which clearly fails. Yeah. Okay. The other thing is, it you know, I, I there's this, I don't know if the right word's tautology, but there's this paradox of it's not scripture unless it's added to the Doctrine and Covenants, but they're not going to add a failed prophecy to the Doctrine and Covenants. And so I, I th that would yeah. be my own answer to my own, you know, canonizing is a problem because we've already shown in past episodes that if there's something added to the canon that then fails to become a pro accurate prophecy, there it's not beyond them to either change it or remove it. Yep. And so the even even the canonization standard is not a reliable one within a Mormon context, right, Mike? Well, yeah. And in, in in the rest of this episode, we've got a bunch of revelations from the DNC that are that are canonized that fail. So I mean even then it does it's not like they're it's not like in the the DNC they've they've kind of scrubbed away anything that didn't happen they just there are revelations that Joseph Smith made that were recorded early on um that were published because they believed it was going to happen and then obviously it does not happen yeah but to your point you can make change like Joseph Smith makes a lot of changes to try to retrofit his history as we talked about with the the priesthood restorations a huge one um but in this case uh he makes these prophecies that fail but i think even back then the church realizes if we scrub them out it's a pretty strong admission that the guy we revere as the second best figure to Jesus Christ was no more reliable than anyone else on the street. And I think that is where you start to see um, the conundrum they put themselves in by recording some of these. And I think that is a big reason why the modern day church doesn't canonize their scriptures because they all know that they're going to be wrong, at least in part on these things. And so they don't want to set themselves. Russell Nelson 
does not want to canonize something about the um you know lgbt stuff that he claimed was revelation because he had to change it three and a half years later we will get to that in our next episode but the fact is the church has reversed multiple revelations and we're going to get to those in our next episode within three to four years of making them so they cannot in 2023 they they, they're in a bind and they know it yeah yeah it's a lot more difficult in in the internet age to make a prophecy because you're going to be held to it in ways that 100 or 200 years ago you weren't you just weren't held to it all right let's go to the next slide which is a really important one the everlasting covenant of the united order yeah, and this is uh, kind of funny, just because we always think of the ever, you know, new and everlasting covenant being for polygamy, but this is before polygamy. So this is um, DNC 104, and it says, uh, "Verily I say unto you, my friends, I give unto you counsel and a commandment concerning all the properties which belong to the order which I commanded to be organized and established, to be a united order and and an everlasting order for the benefit of my church and for the salvation of men until I come." So this is, you know, Jesus basically saying. I've created this everlasting order that you're all going to give your property to, and it's going to be there until I come as a way to basically benefit the church. And um, as we all know, the United Order failed miserably and has not been practiced since Kirtland, uh, which is, you know, obviously problematic, not just because here we have, you know, Jesus saying it's everlasting, but because God promised very grave punishments if the church did not follow this everlasting commandment. And so, this is also from the same revelation. It says, um, therefore, inasmuch as some of my servants have not kept this commandment, but have broken the covenant through covetousness and with feigned words, I have cursed them with a very sore and grievous curse. For I, the Lord, have decreed in my heart that inasmuch as any man belonging to the order shall be found a transgressor or, in other words, shall break the covenant which with, with which ye are bound, he shall be cursed in, this, in his life and shall be trodden down by whom I I will. Can and I just so, say I'm sick of the doctrine and covenants God cursing and condemning people? Mm-hmm. It's just I hate it. I hate that. I it's don't like want a kid throwing a tantrum. Yeah, honestly, I, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it is. It's it's very much just like if you don't do what I say, I'm gonna like just throw all my toys out the pram and get angry at you and mad at you and smite you down and like what what would be the equivalent and- of a of a living parent cursing their child? Like I'm just trying to imagine like my. Clara, my third daughter, it's like, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to hurt you. Like, isn't that child abuse? Like, why does the God of the Doctrine and Covenants in the Old Testament get away with what, Mm. in any mortal context, would be abuse, right? Especially he's meant to be the example of a father. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. One of the things that you start to think about when you think about, like, when you hear in, in general conference, they'll say, oh my goodness, um, God loves us so much and he knows everything we need to have a happy life and he's giving us everything we, you know, just think of the happiness letter, right? But then you think about what the God of Mormonism really does. You know, the God of Mormonism, as Russell Nelson said just a few years ago, you're going to have empty chairs in heaven if you don't do exactly what the church that claims to speak for God tells you to. And, and to your point, John, we, we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, but, you know, the reason that the Doctrine and Covenants God is so um angry and threatening is because it works. You know, if if Joseph Smith says, you know, hey, um Martin Harris, I'd really love for you to mortgage your property uh so we could fund this Book of Mormon publishing, Martin Harris is like, yeah, I'm going to pass cuz my wife's really not happy with this. But when Joseph Smith comes back to him and says, you're going to mortgage your property, you're going to stop coveting your own property, which is also weird, 
and if you don't do it, I'm going to make your life hell, then Martin Harris immediately mortgages yeah. the farm. And Joseph Smith learns early on that by giving revelations that give very pointed uh, threats and, um, you know, basically kind of detailing how bad it's going to be if you don't do it, mm. people are much more willing to go with it. It's the same thing, you know, as much as we hate to say it, if you ask your kid um, to clean the table after dinner, they'll, they'll do it, but then sometimes they'll forget. But if they think you're going to get, they, they're going to yeah. get beaten. If they if they don't, they're going to clean that table right. every time. And so it, it, it's it's an abusive father relationship from Heavenly Father when you talk about the God of Mormonism. But it's coming from Joseph Smith, so it, it's effective. I mean, let's just be honest. Uh, abuse is effective, which is why people are are afraid to leave it. And why people are, you know, it's it's a really horrible way to phrase it, but. Well, it's effective, yeah. and that's what he does. Mm -hmm. And what's extra complicated is the in Mormonism, the God of the Doctrine and Covenants is Jesus Christ, who's yeah. supposed to be the Prince of Peace. We've yeah. we've we've mentioned that before, but but I guess I don't want to stray from the main point of of today's episode, which is that the United Order was kind of like Mormon communism in Kirtland, mm -hmm. and. You know, why did it fail? It failed for the same reason it, it, you know, kind of failed in Russia and kind of failed in China and kind of failed in Cuba. Like humans, humans don't always have motivation. It's hard for an economic system to be efficient. Um, you know, sometimes as, as flawed as capitalism is, I think one of the lessons history has shown us is that that some sort of communism, it's just rough for that to work in the real world so far. We haven't really figured that out yet. So that's why it fails. But the other problem that I have that is a it's a technique associated with cult leaders is this idea of blame reversal. Because it's bad enough that God is this abusive, punishing uh, you know, God who literally is cursing his children for living out their nature because it's clearly human nature for some reason to not be able to support a united order or a communist system. But then it's this, it's this horrible practice of blame reversal where, you know, a prophet makes a, a failed or a bad prophecy. Well, whose fault is it? It's certainly not God's fault and it's certainly not the prophet's fault. So now we're just going to curse uh, the followers and blame it on them. And, and it's important that we recognize that as something called blame reversal, which is a tool of cults and high demand religions to, to wield undue influence on the members. Nemo, what do you think about that? Uh, I, I agree. Uh, and I also want to go to Joseph Smith's use of the word everlasting. It reminds me of that meme. I think it's from the princess bride. Yeah. It's like you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. He keeps using yeah. that word everlasting and it, it doesn't mean what he think it, it means. It doesn't do what he says it will do. Um, yep. I have a feeling that the law of consecration as it is in the temple is a remnant of this way of being amongst yep. the, the members of the church and it's just never disappeared. And so you're, you're covenanting to live a law that was part of a failed prophecy, was part of a, a failed system of being that the church just doesn't practice anymore. Yep. And it's just funny because we, we talked about this revelation is still canonized and it's got very clear threats for people who don't follow the, mm -hmm. the, the, the United Order. And yet we're not following the United Order in the church today. So it, it makes you wonder, like, do they believe the DNC? Because if they do, then they are going to have a horrible afterlife uh, because they're not following an everlasting covenant. And it just it just shows how when you take the church's revelations and prophecies and doctrines at face value, they don't work. We don't even, you know, it's you know, talk about cafeteria Mormonism. This is an area where the church has it as canonized doctrine and they do not practice it. And yet no one talks about that. It's, it's an interesting, 
as Nemo said, this is what part of everlasting are we not understanding here? But isn't so it? We, we know. Oh, go ahead, Nemo. Go I was going to say we know that like we pick and choose with even the the kind of parts of scripture that we say we follow, like the word of wisdom. People don't follow the word of wisdom the way it's written. People, right. what they think following the word of wisdom means is don't drink, don't smoke, don't drink tea or coffee, and that's it. What the word of wisdom does actually specify is that you should eat meat sparingly and. Um, yep. Yeah, and beer and be beer case. beer is okay because it mild Beer's drinks okay, of barley, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. So yeah. as written, we don't we don't pay attention to it. So it's not a leap to then say, well, people will just ignore entire sections of the doctrine and covenants that contain prophecies and commandments because those just aren't emphasized in yeah. uh, Mormon teachings. But it, yeah. but your your guys's point is important. Like we've already shown that that the Mormon Church has been willing to remove or change scripture and prophecy if it becomes problematic later. Well, here's an instance where they left in the failed prophecy and somehow everybody's asleep at the wheel. Like you mm -hmm. would think that that at some point, just like with the outrageousness of DNC 132 and the the polygamy and the virgins and the and the cursing of Emma and the threatening of Emma to be destroyed, you would think that a church would wake up and say, I'm not, I'm not paying one more dollar of tithing. I'm not attending one more week of church until that effing revelation is removed from from our canon because it's clearly abusive and and wrong. No, but just people ignore it. Mm -hmm. And and it's the same thing with 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 this prophecy about you know both this prophecy of United Order and the next one about the New Jerusalem and and Zion and and Independence Missouri. It's like no, everyone's asleep at the wheel and nobody cares. And why? And by the way, why didn't the church remove this section like it did the other sections? It's it's, it's sometimes mind-boggling what members of a religion will let a church kind of get away with. I wonder whether yeah. they leave it in to allow themselves room to reinstate it later. Should they wish that, to? That's what it is. And, and that I was just going to say, like the one the one funny thing about this one is you get the same apologetic response on this um, revelation as you do DNC one thirty two because they'll say it's not where well, the people today are not ready for it, but it's still a commandment. And once the church is ready for it, we're going to go back to it. So that is absolutely. And the by the people they spin. mean, the United States government aren't ready to allow polygamy. That's what they mean. The people, well, they mean that for polygamy. Yeah. For, the authorities for this one, aren't ready. Yeah. <laughs> but for this one, they say the members aren't ready to basically consecrate all of their yeah. property to the church. But one day we're going to get to that point when they are, and then it's going to be basically re-implemented, even though I'm it already sorry. failed once. I'm sorry. As an outsider, have they seen their members lately? I don't think there are the, the one of the large factions of the church. I do not think they are going to essentially sign up for communism anytime soon. No, it's it's an amazing and that's I, yeah. It it <laughs> I I don't want to get into that stuff, but yeah, you're right, Nemo. It's like if you actually, especially if you go online and you look at what members talk about online, they are not going. The, if you were to tell the members, if you were to phrase what the United Order is within Mormonism to them. They would scream at you for being a dirty commie, and then if you said it was the Mormon Church, they'd be like, "Oh, well, you're just you're you're not doing it. You're you're twisting it." And it's like, "No, no, no. That, that's what it is." And, that's why I'm surprised Benson yeah. didn't rip this out. Why uh, Benson was the real push against communism? Like he had a real bee in his yeah. bonnet about communism. So I'm, I'm surprised he didn't look at this scripture and almost declare it heretical and get rid of it. Well, yeah, it's like polygamy isn't polygamy; it's plural marriage. And United Order isn't communism; it's United Order. I, I'm assuming they yeah. would say, "Well, well you it's know, it's special. It's, it, it's special pleading, right? It's like, well, yeah. what they do is horrible, but when we do it, uh -oh. it's from God. If and, God and, and just, Jesus, if God and Jesus do it, it's okay by definition, right? 
Yeah, I mean that's that's what it comes down to, and you yeah. know, well, it, you know, God didn't tell Russia to to implement a communistic system, but God did tell Joseph Smith that we're ready to do it here. I, I mean, it doesn't work, but that I, that is the response you often get when you mm-hmm. point out the kind of inconsistencies and in trying to, you know, for example, um, you'll see the very same people that spend a lot of time online talking about groomers in America, and then you point out how Joseph Smith um, did uh, the basically kept Lucy Walker living in his house, sent off her, her father after her mother died. Um, and then after she was living with them for a couple months, proposed to her as a 16 year old girl, they'll say, well, that's not grooming because that's from God. And you're just like, but that's exactly what you're claiming these other people are doing. And, and so it really, like I said earlier, pick a lane and stay in it. If you want to call something communism, well, then you have to fit this into that equation. It, it, you know what I mean? You can't just jump around because yeah. yours is different because it's, okay. I'm going to tell you right yeah. now, yours is not different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's go to the next one, which I, for me, is a really, really big one. Um, you know, if, one of the things that I remember growing up very distinctly as a Mormon is memorizing the 13 articles of faith and having that little banner that I hung on my door as a mm-hmm. child. And each time I memorized one of the articles of faith, I would put the little, you know, the little circle token to represent that I memorized it. And I'm sure you all can recite this with me. One of the articles of faith is, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the 10 tribes that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon this, the American continent, sorry Nemo, that Christ (laughs) will reign personally upon the earth and the earth will be renewed and will receive its paradisical glory. There's a, you know, Joseph, made really important um, predictions about Independence, Missouri, and the New Jerusalem. So let's go to that now. Yeah. I mean, you, just before we read it, you say, sorry, Nemo, but as a, as a, to add that kind of outside of America perspective, that was an article of faith I often kind of rolled my eyes at. That was a part of church doctrine that even as a fully in believing member, I was kind of like, yeah, all right, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, but it'll probably be all the Brits that will go there, right? Because the Americans won't get the message, whatever it be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, but from an international perspective, that was always one that made me go a bit like, mm, okay, right, that's a bit far, but all right, sure. But for Mormons, anyway. the Articles of Faith are pretty central yeah. to what we would mm-hmm. say is doctrine, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It was It was important. Like I knew it was true as a Mormon. I was like, well, that is what will happen. But just the, because it was so American centric. Yeah, was of just course, like, of mm. course. And it's, and it's been a hundred and 150 years, um, yeah. since it's kind of failed. All right. So take, take us through this, Mike. Yeah. And so this is, I think to John's point, this is probably one of his most well-known kind of failed prophecies. And so he's going to claim in a revelation that a temple would be built in Zion, Missouri, uh, in this generation, which makes it clear that it would have happened long ago. And so this are this is four verses from DNC 84, and I'm going to let Nemo read them. All right, perfect. <laughs> Yea, the word of the Lord concerning his church established in the last days for the restoration of his people, as he has spoken by the mouth of his prophets, and for the gathering of his saints to stand upon Mount Zion, which shall be the city of New Jerusalem, which shall be built, beginning at the temple lot, which is appointed by the finger of the Lord in the western boundaries of the state of Missouri and dedicated by the hand of Joseph Smith Jr. and others with whom the Lord was well pleased. Verily, this is the word of the Lord, that the city New Jerusalem shall be built by the gathering of the saints, beginning at this place, 
even the place of the temple, which temples shall be reared in this generation. For verily this generation shall not all pass away until a house shall be built unto the Lord, and a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord, which shall fill the house. Wow. That's and just it didn't happen. Stunning. <laughs> didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, like, this yeah. is... Hey, look, for verily this generation shall not all pass away. It's like, yeah. you can you just, you know, the apologetic is that generation can mean a lot of things. You know, translation, translation, skin, skin. Tra- this is horse, as horse. clear as day. Yeah. yeah, this is as clear as day that Joseph Smith is like, some of you will be alive when this temple is built and it does not happen. And this is a canonized revelation uh, that's still in the church today. And everyone can read it and go, oh, that's weird. That didn't happen. And to John's point, they don't focus on it because if you do, once you start to think about it, you're going to have a lot of issues in, internally to try to, to sort out. But there, there's no way around yeah. this. This is a failed prophecy. Go ahead and read. Go ahead and, and, and read your final couple sentences, Mike. Oh, I pretty much just did. It, it, Joseph says just the fact that he said the generation shall not all pass away until an house shall be built unto the Lord. 100% that's a failed prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, what was supposed to happen was that, you know, we were getting kicked out of Ohio and Kirtland. He sent a bunch of people to Missouri. And we were all supposed to, as Mormons, move to Missouri, move to Independence, Missouri, build a temple there, and then Jesus would come. I mean, that was it. And we were the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Instead, you know, Governor Boggs and whoever else ended up issuing an exterminating order. We got our rear ends handed to us. We we considered going to war with the people of Missouri until we realized that wasn't going to end up well for us. And at the end of the day, Joseph Smith and the remaining saints, after a massive apostasy, kind of go slurching, slouching into Illinois to rebuild. And uh, not only did not only did this prophecy not happen in 2023, we don't even own the temple lot. Some other church owns the plot of land where the temple is supposed to be built. Because if you read this scripture, it it gets so specific as to actually mention the actual lot. And mm-hmm. we all know through historical records what that lot yep. is, and some other church owns it. And so so what we saw is we went to Missouri. I'm mean, sorry, we all all the saints went to Illinois. Joseph built up a new city there. He actually built a temple there, but then he ends up getting killed. And the saints get driven from Illinois, and we have to set up again in Utah. And over time, I remember growing up um, hearing the reinterpretation that Zion dwells within us now. Before, we all knew what Zion was. Zion was Independence, Missouri, where we're all supposed to gather. But that got reinterpreted in modern Mormonism, Mm -hmm. that, that Zion dwells within us, and we're supposed to build the stakes of Zion wherever we live instead of move and congregate to independence. Is that, is that what you remember, Nemo? Yeah, though you still get those Mormons saying that, oh, well, when the prophet starts gathering people, uh, you know, that's when we, we might then get the temple lot back and then we might start building a temple. And they've kind of like retrofitted the significance of it to like some sort of future part of the gathering of Israel um, when Joseph Smith very much had it in mind for a specific time. And this isn't the last time that prophets will then go on to use the word generation 
so loosely that it, I don't know, I did a video on ye are the chosen generation, a royal priesthood, etc, etc, that verse from Peter. Um, and prophets, generation after generation, keep telling young people that they are a chosen generation. So, yep. Uh, the one, and the reason I bring that up is because one of the apologetics that comes with that is people then saying, well, generation doesn't mean, you know, the traditional genetic meaning of a generation, the traditional anthropological meaning of a generation. It means those of the latter days. And it's like, well, okay, fine, I guess maybe, but I don't see how you would apply that apologetic to this because you made it very clear that it's about people dying of this generation. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to add, yeah. Mike? No, I mean, it's just like you said, it's one of those things where um, there will be probably a day when, when the Mormon church buys that that lot, I'm sure. And when they do, they'll, they're going to reframe it as a fulfillment of prophecy when you can read it for yourself and realize that this is 100% a failed prophecy that Joseph Smith, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, when Joseph Smith is in control of a situation, he can make prophecies fulfill themselves because he's in control of it. And in this case, he probably thought he was in control. And that's why he probably made that revelation because he thinks we're in Missouri. We have the ability to um, have this lot and build there. So he makes this revelation. And then all of a sudden he loses control because the church gets kicked out of Missouri. And it just shows that either God, again, can't give Joseph Smith correct prophecy or God is too powerless to stop a group of people in Missouri. And neither one of them is good. And ultimately, when you see it happen over and over again, it's pretty clear that whoever is claiming to speak for God and continually getting it wrong is not speaking for God. I mean, it's just no way around it. Because, and then by the scriptures and admission, you then shouldn't be afraid of him, you know? Yeah, you that's just be, it. You shouldn't be afraid of that prophet because they've got it wrong. Yep. And so what you want to do there is just add all these up, aggregate them as we're doing and say, well, that should mean that you just don't really need to listen. And as for the powerlessness of God, it's just wild. It's absolutely wild that the the only argument you can make there now is, well, agency. God's not going to yeah. interfere with agency. It's like, okay, so God's not going to interfere with agency to allow a prophecy to be fulfilled. Yeah. What's the point in the prophecy then? Because if you can yeah. prophesy something, God can tell you that will happen and then someone else's agency gets in the way. How yep. does that work? Yeah. And that's the thing, like, and to your point, you get into this argument of like, um, arguing that you have to leave agency, right? And so Joseph Smith will go to a, a teenage girl and say, you've been commanded by God to marry me. And then we're going to, we're going to be told by the church that they still have the agency to say no, but we all know that in that revelation that, or commandment that Joseph Smith is giving this teenage girl, he's saying, if you don't accept this, the gates will be closed forever. That's what he said to Lucy Walker, or they'll say, this is your chance to get exaltation for you and your family. And so then you have to say, well, is it really free agency when there are threats contained within it? Or is it then kind of, I would frame it more as like spiritual extortion. And in this case, to what Nemo is saying, you know, if you're going to say, well, well, God can't interfere in the free agency of, say, the, the mob in Missouri by stopping them, it's really hard to reconcile that with the same God that is doing all of these miracles in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And, and it, that's that's where you start to see some issues where it's like, how come um, the version of God portrayed in the scriptures is so powerful and able to do anything? And then when you look at the prophets of Mormonism, they can't even get up there and tell you who Heavenly Mother is. They can't even stop, um, like, like we just talked about, a temple um, from being stopped. It's just one of those things like, it's just to me, you have to be consistent. And I'm hammering that because yeah. when you look at apologetics, they're just yeah. jumping all over the place. It, right. You just can't do that. If you want to be intellectually honest, yeah. you have to, you just have to address it and deal with it. Whether or not you stay in the church, yeah. that's your choice, right. but you can't keep yeah. saying. Totally. Yep. 
Totally. And I love the slide that you shared kind of uh, um, on the side. For those yeah. who are just listening, there's a slide that has uh, from David O. McKay to Russell M. Nelson. Think of it like a Brady Bunch, nine squares, three by three. And it basically, you know, is a photo that says you are super special. You are the chosen generation. And what it's alluding to is, you know, when I was growing up in the church in the 80s, going to seminary, you know, I was taught that, you know, I was the Saturday's warrior. And what that was meant was this Saturday is the, you know, it's the evening of the Saturday. If the existence of mankind were a week and Jesus was coming on Sunday, we were all taught that, you know, it's Saturday night, you know, we, whatever, whatever the youth are at the time, we are the chosen generation. We are Saturday's warriors. We are, we are here save for the last days. Um, and, uh, but, but it didn't take much to, to realize that my parents were taught that they were the chosen generation to usher in the coming of Christ and their parents were, and their parents were, I remember my seminary teacher, Lawrence Layton telling us that he got a revelation that Jesus would come within before he died. Well, guess what? He's died. And and then, of course, I noticed that subsequent generations were also all told that they were part of the chosen generation up until the current generation being told that they're the ones that are going to usher in mm -hmm. the second coming. And it makes this kind of latter-day second coming of Jesus almost like this hamster wheel where, like, the carrot's in front of you and you're running to try and eat the carrot like you're a hamster, but the wheel's just constantly spinning and recycling. And that's kind of what this whole millennialistic Saturday's warrior, um, New Jerusalem kind of doctrine has turned into from my perspective. Nemo, you're you're a few generations younger than me, or at least <laughs> one full generation. Were you taught that you were kind of Saturday's warrior generation? I, I didn't know that's what Saturday's warrior meant. Everyone keeps going on about Saturday's warrior, and I feel like it's this Utah cultural reference that never made it in my neck of the woods. Um, I always thought it was just a terrible church film, but apparently it's, it's more than that. Um, we, I was absolutely taught I was a chosen generation, though. Absolutely drunk that up. And um, and then my nephew, who's, you know, 13 years younger than me, taught the same thing. And then I'm sure that, you know, his nephew will be taught the same thing or it just keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, that's a really important one. And, uh, you know, basically the New Jerusalem doctrine and the, and the Jesus is coming any day now doctrine has been largely shelved. I will add... I'm pretty sure that with $100 billion plus several hundred billion dollars, the church could make some offers to the temple lot folks and buy that plot of land. But I don't think the church in 2023 wants the saints focusing on this prophecy and relocating to Missouri. And so it's we're in this weird spot where the church could actually acquire the land and build the temple. But the last thing it wants is all the members actually waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled? Because when it doesn't, they're all gonna. A lot of them are gonna look at each other and say, "You know, who, who's who's steering this ship?" Right, Mike? Hmm. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. Actually, I was gonna point out there is somebody um, who went to a recent um, <clears throat> like fireside kind of thing, and one of the leaders, and I, I don't know if they actually say who it was because I think they're trying not to out who it was that reported. It. Um, that leader was actually telling them that the 
the top leaders of the church have been visiting Missouri like multiple times a month for uh, recently. And they were saying that to this fireside as a way to tell people like, you better get your crap in order because the second coming is, is right around the corner. And I don't believe for a second that Russell Nelson is taking jet, a bunch of jet trips over to Missouri, but there is always going to be this like urban legend in the air that they're going to say the church is, is totally getting ready to go to Missouri. So you better get your house in order. And and it's happening. This was uh, like a few weeks ago. So in 2023, there are these rumors coming from this fireside that one of the, I don't know if it was a stake president or higher, uh, basically said, yeah, the, the the brethren are visiting Missouri like multiple times a month. So it is kind of funny to your point, John, because I don't think they want people to to focus on that because as we've talked about, if they go and they buy this temple lot and then all of a sudden 20 years goes by and nothing happens, it's going to be like, yeah, they really do not speak for God. So it's almost easier just to leave it out there. And, and I think it's the um, Church of Christ that owns it, right? They still own it? It's or did Community they... of Christ, Church okay. of Christ, and yeah. the LDS Church. They each own parts of the area. God. Yeah, so um, I mean, they, they've all got buildings operating there, but um, the Community of Christ, I believe, owns the largest portion. Okay, okay. Well, I I misspoke. The other the other rumor, the other iteration of a rumor I heard recently is that it's now known that Nelson Russell M. Nelson is the prophet that's going to usher in, you know, Jesus yeah. Christ's return. And this is the type of whisper campaign that gets shared amongst um, Orthodox Mormons, but also the youth to kind of make them feel a sense of urgency to be righteous, to be obedient, to go on missions, to pay their tithing, because Jesus is almost here. And I just recently heard the rumor that Russell M. Nelson, he's the one that's going to usher in. But but they've literally said that about every prophet ever. So Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what it yeah. comes down to is every single prophet is like the one that we revere. And so, of course, they're going to be the one that's chosen. Yeah. And uh, you know, yeah, we, we, we'll have plenty to say about Russell Nelson in, in the next episodes, but yeah, yeah. I, I don't see him as being uh, a guy that's going to be ushering in anything. Well, let's go to the next slide, which is Joseph Smith prophecy that Zion will not fall. Yeah. And so we're going to have a few slides on this because this is one of those, you know, I joined as we talked about as a, you know, after high school, so I didn't go through seminary. And so I didn't have a huge grasp on church history. And I, I don't think that a lot of members did back then anyways, but I didn't understand kind of the implications of the whole Zion's camp. And so this is uh, tying into what we've already talked about um, in some of our earlier revelations. But basically, Joseph Smith is going to claim a revelation that Zion will not fall. And so this is from DNC 97. It says, and the nations of earth shall honor her and shall say, surely Zion is the city of our God and surely Zion cannot fall, neither be moved out of her place for God is there and the hand of the Lord is there. And he hath sworn by the power of his might to be her salvation in her high tower. Therefore, verily, thus saith the Lord, let Zion rejoice, for this is Zion, the pure in heart. Therefore, let Zion rejoice, while all the wicked shall mourn. For behold, and lo, a vengeance cometh speedily upon the ungodly as the whirlwind, and who shall escape it? The Lord's scourge shall pass over by night and by day, and the report thereof shall vex all people. Yea, it shall not be stayed until the Lord come. And so, you know, here we have Joseph Smith saying, Zion's going nowhere. God's going to protect it. And the members are going to leave Missouri soon after. And as we're going to talk about in the, in the coming revelation, it's going, to, it's going to be the members of the church that are blamed for it. But this right here is Joseph Smith saying, God's protecting this place. It's not going to fall because at the time, of course, there's this growing fear that they're going to get kicked out of Missouri. And, you know, as we're going to show in the next few slides, they're going to get kicked out. And so this is going to be a failed prophecy. Okay. And so tell me if I'm remembering this right, and we're going to talk about it. Basically, the church is founded in New York in 1830, but there's a lot of that 
treasure digging, jealousy, folk magic residue, which means that Joseph kind of is not going to be able to escape his his folk magic treasure digging past. So ultimately, the church is relocated to Kirtland, Ohio. A temple's built there, but obviously, you know, Joseph kind of does the scorched earth thing every five or six years. Wherever he starts something, it ends up blowing up. There's the Kirtland Bank scandal. But Joseph was, um, I guess he did have some foresight enough to send people down to Missouri, saying Missouri's going to be where it all happens. And, um, of course, the Kirtland Bank scandal and other things cause another apostasy, spoil Kirtland. And so all the members are anticipating that that Independence, Missouri is going to be the place where the church is going to be established. And so this scripture you just read is Joseph Smith basically throwing the gauntlet down, saying Independence, Missouri is the place, but then the state of Missouri ends up being annoyed by Mormons, hating Mormons, issuing an exterminating order against the Mormons, and Missouri becomes very inhospitable. So that's the point where Joseph's either got to like throw down and say it's going to happen in Missouri or run away with his tail between his legs. And the scripture you just read is basically Joseph kind of throwing down the gauntlet, right, Mike? Yeah. I mean, this is just a pretty clear way of Joseph Smith saying God's going to protect this place. It's the ungodly are going to be, you know, be taken care of. And yet, right. I mean, pretty soon after this, um, they're driven out. And so it, it just shows again that either Joseph Smith is just kind of, you know, rattling the saber to try to keep the people happy and not speaking for God. Or again, God can't protect the church in ways that God promises Joseph Smith, he's going to protect the church. And so it's a trend you're going to see in these revelations because I'm not saying that this should be easy for God just to strike down people, but is God powerful or is God completely unable to do anything? And I just, I feel like people will hear this episode and think I'm trying to mock God. I'm saying the God of the Mormon church makes promises that the God of the Mormon church is apparently unable to keep. And you have to reconcile that one way or the other. So yeah, this is Joseph Smith effectively throwing down the gauntlet and saying, Zion is not falling. So tell tell us really quickly before we go to this next slide, what is Zion's camp? And well, we're going to get... Uh, oh, is yeah, that so, what the next slide is going to talk about? Do you want to yeah, set yeah, so up we're, that? We're going to get into that, yeah. So the, Okay, this so is let's go to the next slide. The next one. All right. Yeah, and so basically it's after the church is forced from Missouri, um, this puzzles Joseph Smith, and this is from the book Saints. It says... Joseph did not understand why God had let the saints suffer and lose the promised land, which makes sense given the revelation we just read. And so this leads Joseph Smith to write DNC 101. And I'm reading this from the saints book because it kind of gives a, a, like a, almost like a story feel to, to this whole uh, event. And so I think it's, it's good to understand how the church presents it today along with the revelation. And so um, it says, this is about DNC 101. It says, while the revelation urged peaceful negotiations with the people of independence, the Lord also indicated that Zion could be reclaimed by power. The revelation calls for 500 men to go to Missouri, but the force was only a small fraction of the 500 the Lord had called for. Even though the force did not match the revelation, they carried on to Missouri. Okay, so, so let me just make sure I understand. So Joseph issues a revelation, or God through Joseph issues a revelation saying 500 men are going to go down to Missouri and liberate and yeah. liberate uh, independence. And that's what Zion's camp was and was supposed to be. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So basically 
Joseph Smith claims that God says it won't fall. It falls. So then Joseph Smith gets this revelation that says we could take it by power, by force. Meaning military, gonna, like military yeah. force, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically by, by physical force. So we're going to get in the revelation called for 500 men to be assembled to go down to independence to just take the land back. And but he, but he wasn't all, able. He wasn't able to even muster up 500 people at the time. No, right? he only got a frat. I, I think it was like a. I could be wrong. I think it's like 150 or 200. But it's it's a a small fraction compared to what the revelation calls for. And it, and it was a ragtag group. As I, it, it's been a long yeah. time since I've read this, but it was kind of this ragtag group that goes down and and thinks that they're going to be fighting a war, and based on like. Book of Mormon teachings about like how God protected yep. the, the stripling warriors or the, whoever God's people. They're thinking somehow God's going to intervene in some miracle, and this ragtag band of a few hundred scruffs are somehow going to defeat the the standing militias of the state of Missouri. And it, as I understand it, it reached the point of like almost conflict, where like we're lined up on one side and they're lined up on the other. And there's this moment of truth where, like, it's either charge or no charge. And as I understand it, Joseph kind of backs down. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's exactly it. So um, if you go back to the slides, okay. so DNC, DNC 101 basically says you you could take it by power. And so they, they go on this, what they call Zion's camp. Some call it Zion's march. And they go down to Missouri and they take all of these people um, and, and they go. And like you said, it's, it, they don't have a lot of resources. And so... Um, this is DNC 103, which comes obviously soon after. It says, The redemption of Zion must needs come by power. The Lord declared, Let no man be afraid to lay down his life for my sake. And so here we've got DNC 101 calling for this army of men to be created. DNC 103 is like, We're taking this by power. Do not be afraid. I got you. I'm God. And so they get to, to Missouri, and Joseph Smith realizes that they do not have the numbers. And so he's trying to make negotiations, which fail. And so Joseph Smith realizes that they're screwed. They're either all going to die because they, you know, they're outnumbered and Joseph Smith must know on some level, God ain't protecting them. And so the camp fails to retake Zion and God then changes his mind about retaking the land by power uh, in DNC 105, which said that members need to be endowed before they could take the land back. And this is like, you know, there's a um, movie called The Wedding Singer. And there's this part where she's talking to the guy that she just broke off, you know, left at the altar. And he says, that's information, that information might have been useful to me yesterday. Um, why are you going to take a couple hundred people down through a very grueling march just to tell them when they get there, um, you know what, God changed his mind. We're not going to take it by power. You need to be endowed with power first. And so it just really shows that Joseph Smith, he knows he, he's powerless. And as I've said before, when Joseph Smith is not in control of the situation, his revelations are horrible. Well, in this case, he's not in control of what's going to happen to Missouri. So he's able to, to make these revelations to get people to go. But then when he gets there, he's like, yeah, I we're screwed. Yeah. So they just and so the members are mad because they've given up so much to make this really horrible journey. And Joseph's just like, oh, you know what? You need to get your endowment first and then you're going to have the yeah. power. And it's just it's absurd. And a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, uh, progressive or apologetic Mormons want to say there's no similarity between like David Koresh or Jim Jones and Joseph Smith, that somehow, you know, Koresh and Jim Jones and, and Keith Raniere and, you know, they're, they're evil, awful, bad prophets, because look, you know, their, their civilizations, their followings ended in mass death or mass suicide. But the truth is Zion's camp very well could have ended in a bloodbath 
with the Mormons being fully exterminated. And, you know, on the one hand, yay, Joseph Smith didn't lead his people into a massacre. On the other hand, he almost did. And so I guess I'm glad that he didn't lead them into a massacre. But it's all, the only difference in my mind between David Koresh and Jim Jones and Joseph Smith is that in some sense, Joseph Smith turned tail and kind of backed out. And I guess I don't know whether to respect him for that or to not respect him for kind of wimping out. I'm glad he wimped out, but does that make him even less of a respectable prophet? I don't know. But this clearly is one of the instances, I would say Illinois, you know, the ending of the church in Illinois would be another instance that could have literally been disastrous, you know, a, a massacre, right? Yeah. I mean, we could talk about the way the church tries to paint it now. Um, I'm just looking at the church's website where they talk about Zion's camp and they say, this expedition known today as Zion's camp was initially called the camp of Israel. It was formed after Joseph Smith re received a revelation in February, 1834, commanding him to call up the strength of the Lord's house to redeem Zion from its enemies. The revelation instructed church leaders to recruit at least 100, preferably 500 men to travel to Missouri. Um, and then it goes on to say, although they saw it, uh, many saw it as a uh, military um, operation, Joseph Smith and other church leaders saw it as a purely defensive campaign, which feels to me a little bit like retconning history. Um, and they now try and paint it as, oh, they went just to guide the saints that were still there out. Um, and then there's the story of the fishing river flooding, and that saves them from being overrun and all that sort of stuff. So, so I think the way that it's now phrased or looked at is that, They've changed the narrative about why they went and they've changed the narrative about why they left again, which was that miracles saved them from being overrun. Uh, I think the quote is, you'll see hell in the morning from 400 men or something like that, but then the river floods and they all run away again. Yeah. Yeah. And I just have to say, read the account. I don't know if it was in No Man Knows My History or Rough Stone Rolling, but when you read the account of Zion's camp, and especially you read the slide we're going to show next, which is the blame reversal that happens, it's one of the most sickening, abusive, sad moments in all of early Mormon history. So let's go ahead and go to that slide, Mike. Yeah, and so this is DNC 105. So what I'm, as I mentioned before, you know, you've got three revelations that are basically leading up to this. So the first one says Zion is not going to fall. The second one says, well, Zion fell, but we could take it by power. The next one is Zion, we're going to take by power. And then when it fails, this is the revelation we get, which is DNC 105. And Nemo, do you want to read one through seven for us? Absolutely. That's fine. Verily I say unto you who have assembled yourselves together that you may learn my will concerning the redemption of mine afflicted people. Behold, I say unto you, were it not for the transgression of my people, speaking concerning the church and not individuals, they might have been redeemed even now. But behold, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I require at their hands, but are full of all manner of evil, and do not impart of their substance, as becometh saints, to the poor and afflicted among them. That hasn't aged well. And are not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. And Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself. And my people must needs be chastened until they learn obedience. If it must needs be by the things which they, which they cuffer? All right. I'm wondering if it's meant to be suffer, but... Possibly. 
I speak not concerning those who are appointed to lead my people, who are the first elders of my church, for they are not all under this condemnation. Which isn't that terribly convenient. Mike, oh my, Mike yeah. is audibly gasping. Mike, well, yeah, what's going just, on, Mike? Well, I mean, like I said, I, I didn't know this stuff until after I had done the deep dive because I really didn't learn this in, in church. And just to read Joseph Smith, actually tell the members that it failed because they were evil and then have God put in a verse to say, oh, the people that led you into this debacle, they're not to blame. It's so transparently it's, yeah. bad. And it's not just that. It's... No one will understand how much sacrifice these people made to support the early LDS church, whether it's in New York or Kirtland or, or Missouri or Illinois or the pioneers that, that ended up settling Utah. Like these are people that, that were, were humble, faithful people who put their trust in Joseph Smith at and Brigham Young at great, significant personal sacrifice, the type of sacrifice that probably none of us will ever, ever come to know. And so to see that level of sacrifice rewarded or punished with kind of the shaming condemnation, it's the type of thing that would make me want to do a John Larson, like expletive filled rant because it's <laughs> so, it's so outrageous, right? It's yeah, it's awful. Yeah. It's terrible. And then you've got Joseph Smith failing them and not giving them convenient revelation that, for example, boiling water might be a good idea so they don't all get yep. cholera later on, right? Because yeah. then while he's berating them, they're all then going to get very, very sick um, from something that, you know, God could have helped them out with. Yeah, I just, it, it, it is just absolutely absurd. And, you know, these these people listen to Joseph Smith because he claimed through the voice of God that they are going to take this by power if they go down there and if they're faithful. You want to tell me these people are evil and unfaithful that just took, I think it's 800 miles between uh, Kirtland and, and Independence, an 800-mile walk. You're going to tell me they're unfaithful? Absolutely ghoulish stuff for Joseph Smith to then turn it around and say you have manners of evil in you and then to say, oh, by the way, the people that lead you, me, God wants you to know that I'm pretty freaking awesome. And this is very similar to the, um, for those who have seen the South Park episode on the origins of the Book of Mormon, uh, when Martin Harris loses the 116 pages, and, and I realize South Park is parodying it, but Joseph Smith is like, Martin, I've gotten a revelation from God. He is really angry with you, but he's going to let us keep doing, keep, you know, translating the book. And Martin's like, wow, if God's angry at you, then it must be true. <laughs> and it just reminds me of this idea of like, Joseph Smith is telling these people how, how awful they are. And so... These people are upset because Joseph Smith told them God said they'd protect them and retake Zion, and it fails. And these people are like, Joseph, you are full of crap. You told us this was going to happen. We walked 800 miles, and then you got to walk back, and it didn't happen. And Joseph's like, you guys are upset because you're evil, unfaithful people. It's just, it, this is, like you said, this is the area when you, when you do want to do an expletive fill ramp. Because one, Joseph Smith here is just not a good person if you're going to, to throw the blame on the people who went through such a horrible journey for something you literally made up. And then two, the fact is that this tactic works to keep, to settle people down because now they feel like if they complain that God is going to strike them down when God clearly couldn't do it to save, um, to save Zion. I just, it, yeah, this is one of those areas where you're just like, um, again, to quote the South Park episode, it's like, you know, all of this and you still believe it because when you read this, you can see without any question that again, either Joseph Smith is making it up or God has no power. And if God has no power, you got nothing to fear anyway. So uh -huh. But it is it yeah. is an amazing skill that Joseph Smith has to be able to threaten people with 
consequences enacted by a God who failed to enact those consequences on their behalf, which is what you've just alluded to. God wasn't powerful enough to help them overtake Zion, but yet they have managed to be convinced by Joseph Smith that God is powerful enough to punish them and do the things to them which he couldn't do to those and help them take Zion. So it's an amazing way that Joseph Smith or any cult leader in in that respect, you know, those that act that way, are able to navigate those waters between a God who isn't able to fulfill the promises they give the people, but using that same God as a way to keep those people in line. Yeah, 100%. It's just, it. this is one of those ones that is, it's angering because you read it and you could just see the manipulation Joseph Smith is using not only to get these people to shut up about the fact that they're upset that Joseph's revelation failed, but to even in doing that, continue to elevate himself up even higher to say, oh yeah, it failed, but it's because of you guys. I was awesome. You guys have evil in you. It's it's just, yeah. I, you know, to John's point earlier, it just feels so abusive. Like if you did that to your family, uh, they would want nothing to do with you because you'd be a horrible person. And yet in today's church, they talk about him as like the second greatest person to Jesus. And you're like, no, he had a lot of, of elements of his character that are absolutely fraudulent and manipulative and yeah. abusive. And yeah. we're seeing them all right here. Yeah. And when you look okay. at like a, a modern apostle, like Dallin H. Oaks, the number two in the church, make a statement like we neither seek nor offer apologies. You look at something like Zion's camp and you say, well, clearly that's, that was his inspiration. He's just doing what Joseph Smith did. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Joseph and or God to say, whoops, sorry, we made a mistake. It's our bad, not yours. Maybe we need to re- recalibrate and retune our prophecies, but this one's on us, guys. Sorry, that's not what Mormon God does. That's not what Mormon Jesus does. That's not what what the founding Mormon prophet does. He just redirects the blame to the people. Mm-hmm. Yep. So so I guess Down H. Oaks comes by it, honestly. But there is one shining, glorious gift that Zion's camp has given us all, and that is Zelf the White Lamanite. Why don't you tell us about Woo! that, Mike? <laughs> yeah, and this is one, if you've done deep dives into Mormonism, you're going to come across because this is um, this this actually solves a lot or kind of cements a lot of problems for Mormonism. And, you know, as a long story short, we'll read the account that John Taylor gives in the church-run Times and Seasons, so people can't say this is some sort of anti-Mormon diatribe. But Joseph Smith, they're on this this long journey. Remember we're talking about, it's like 800 miles, right? You're walking from Ohio to Missouri, and they're talking through this, right? Because what else are you going to do when you're doing this long journey? And they come across this pile of bones, and people are like, oh, wow, look, at there's bones, and I think there's an arrowhead in it that Brigham Young keeps. And Joseph Smith, of course, because he can't help himself, is like, oh, yeah, God told me that this is Zelf, the white Lamanite. And so um, we'll read what John Taylor said. But, yeah, this this is we'll talk about the implications after because this to me is a lot of uh, more problematic than kind of like the the way that both critics approach it, kind of laughing at it. And then, of course, believers kind of say this is just Joseph speaking as a man. But it shows that Joseph Smith is willing to just throw around um, two members that he speaks for God about the most minute things, which, again, is in stark contrast to the leaders today. Can I read? Can I read one this time, Mike? Yeah, why don't you read it? So All I was right. giving you a throat a break because I know you're you're not feeling oh, no. 100%, but yeah, feel free. Okay, I'll do it. All right, so here we go. This is John Taylor, third prophet of the Mormon Church in the Times and Seasons, eighteen forty-six. Quote: On the top of the mound were stones, which presented the appearance of three altars, having been erected one above the other, according to ancient order and human bones were strewn over the surface of the ground. The brethren procured a shovel and hoe, and removing the earth, 
to the depth of about one foot, discovered skeleton of a man almost entire, and between his ribs was a Lamanitish arrow, which evidently produced his death. I've never heard that adjective, Lamanitish, but there we have it. Um, Elder Brigham Young retained the arrow, and the brethren carried some pieces of the skeleton to Clay County. The contemplation of the scenery before us produced particular sensations in our bosoms, and the visions of the past being opened to my understandings by the Spirit of the Almighty, I discovered that the person whose skeleton was before us was a white Lamanite, a large, thick-set man and a man of God. He was a warrior and chieftain under the great prophet Omendegus, who was known from the Hill Camorra or Eastern Sea to the Rocky Mountains. His name was Zelf. The curse was taken from him, and I'm assuming that's the curse of dark skin. Uh, the curse was taken from him, or at least in part, one of his thigh bones was broken by a stone flung from a sling uh, while in battle years before his death. He was killed in battle by the arrow found among his ribs during the last great struggle of the Lamanites and Nephites. Now I'm hearing audible gasps. What's going on, Mike and Nemo? Why why are you guys gasping? I just I want to make a point first of all. The thing that upsets me the most is the implication that someone threw a stone from a sling hard enough to snap a man's thigh bone. That takes some serious strength or a serious sized stone, I would imagine. Um, but I would like to say that I'm very grateful to Joseph Smith for this because without this, what else would we call Sam Shelley and Tanner? Yeah. What so, else would we call them? That's a, that's a reference to the Zelf on the Shelf YouTube channel that mm. is uh, be much beloved. And I'm taking full credit for actually naming that uh, YouTube channel back when they were in my support group at Utah State University. They're like, what should we name our YouTube channel? And I'm taking full credit for that one. But they've done all the great work since then. Anyway, um, all right. And what, what else? I mean, there's obviously the, the, the desecration of a sacred Indian burial mound. Yes. Maybe that yeah. would be presentism. You know, we can't really, really expect 19th century frontiermen to respect Indian burial mounds. No. I don't know. But what you do see is he's firmly putting geographical locations on Book of yep. Mormon events. And that's that's the thing. I don't know if I stole your thunder there, Mike, but that is the no, thing that's, that this does is yeah. it absolutely rules out rules out the hemispheric model that began after the time that B. H. Roberts started to bring all Meaning these problems what? to light. For, for our non-Mormons, so, what do you mean yeah. by hemispheric? So there's model? there's two models of Book of Mormon geography because no one's actually been able to settle the places of the Book of Mormon onto real existent sort of extant places within the United States for the most part. So in Joseph Smith's time, there was a belief in a localized version of the Book of Mormon places. So the Hill Cumorah was actually the Hill Cumorah up in upstate New York. That's where that big battle took place, all these sorts of things. Then when B.H. Robert came about in the early 1900s, uh, there started to be problems and concerns with this model um, because there was very little archaeological evidence at the time. And they've since has been more, uh, there's still a dearth of archaeological evidence. So apologists and the church in general has moved towards what they call a hemispheric model, meaning that the events of the Book of Mormon took place across the entire of the sort of Western hemisphere from South and Central America up into Northern America. And in doing that, they took out footnotes from 
LDS scriptures that named the bodies of water in the scriptures as things like Lake Ontario and, um, and the sort of Great Lakes area. So they really pulled the part away from that in the early 1900s as a brief summary. Wait, are yeah. you, what, what about the Mesoamerica model, how, how we've moved to that over time? Because that's the so only that area. that forms part of the hemispheric model that forms part of bringing yeah. it out into the broader Western hemisphere rather or, than just or strictly even, North America. Or the crazy interpretation that there's two hill Camoras mm-hmm. that, that, that Moroni buried the plates somewhere in Central America yep. because yep. how else could he have walked and the distances and the mm-hmm. armies and, and, the, and you know, the lack of, again, of archaeological evidence. There's also the two Camoras theory, which is all kind of silly. But Mike, mm-hmm. what point do you want to drive home about all of this? Just keep bringing up that slide one more time real quick. Yeah, absolutely. Just because there's a, there's a few parts here. So one, you know, they're saying um, he was known from the Hill Camorra or Eastern Sea. So they're putting the Hill Camorra on the eastern part of the U.S., which makes sense because the Hill Camorra is in New York. So that right there is cementing that the Hill Camorra in New York, where the gold plates were, is the one that Joseph Smith taught through the, the voice of God was the Hill Camorra with the big battles. So there's no two Hill Camorras, as you just mentioned. They're, they're cementing where it. Millions of people died. Yes, where millions, millions of people died with, with zero yeah. archaeological evidence. Yes, um, and then they're talking about how it's a white Lamanite with the curse was taken from him. So they're cementing the fact that the curse is skin, actual human skin. So the apologetic that skin doesn't mean skin falls apart because Joseph Smith is telling this to the other people wow. that it's through the spirit of revelation. They're saying the curse was taken from him. That's why he's a white Lamanite. So you have, as Nemo pointed out, they're saying that these these events, these battles happened in America which the church today is trying to get away from, that the Hill Camorra is in New York, which the church is trying to get away from because archaeological evidence tells you that absolutely did not happen. And Joseph Smith here, Joseph Smith here is cementing that dark skin is a sign of the curse or the curse, however you want to phrase it, but it is literal skin. And these are all being done in the name of God in this revelation. And as we know, um, I'm not calling this a failed revelation. I'm just saying that this is a revelation that gives us a ton of insight into a lot of other problematic areas of Mormonism that the church wants to say are not what we can read with our own eyes because Joseph Smith is making clear through the voice of God um, exactly what what the Book of Mormon means and what we all take it to mean because it's at face value. Yeah, for me, it 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 really it 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 actually is really important evidence to the credibility of Joseph Smith. And it it's a testament to his creative mind that he just would see stuff and then free associate and whatever came into his mind, he would yep. just, he would just state it as if it were doctrine and scripture. I mean, unless you believe that God is super racist and turns people's skin dark when they're wicked or back to white when they're righteous, unless you believe that, you know, this book of Mormon narrative happened where millions of people killed each other, but there's no DNA or linguistic or archeological evidence to support it. You know, unless you believe a lot of racist or insulting or scientifically uh, completely unverifiable, unverifiable things, you really have no option but to look at this this one account as just one example of many of just silly, frivolous, creative, kind of almost uh, fan fiction prophecies and revelations that Joseph Smith was inclined to just kind of throw out there. Um, rooted in his folk magic days. And so once you go there, then it kind of can taint Joseph Smith as a credible prophet because then that fully explains the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon 
is basically just the the Zelf the White Lamanite story times a thousand, right? Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. that that's what explains the Book of Mormon probably better than anything else. It's Joseph's fanciful, creative, um, storytelling mind, you know, run amok in the Book of Mormon with a, with two to three years to prepare, plan, and execute the book. And and it's all. I think this story is, is is instructive about kind of what the most likely explanation for the Book of Mormon is. It's basically Zelf times a thousand, right? Yeah, I mean he's cementing he's cementing all of the things that we know about the Book of Mormon. We talk about the curse of dark skin that it happened in America. The Hill Camorra with the big battle was in New York, where the plates were buried. He's cementing this in the voice of God. And so when the church tells you today, oh, you know, there's probably a second Hill Camorra, and the fair Mormon will say, oh, you know, the early people were confused because they were kind of just, just making this uh, bad assumption that that's what Hilkamore, but Hilkamore is actually out, you know, somewhere else. And, and you read this and you're like, no, no, not at all. Joseph Smith is 100% cementing this. It, uh, there's no way around it. And as we've talked about in so many episodes, it's like you try to create one apologetic, but then you look at something like this, it just compounds the problem, not just there, but geography, um, yeah, but right. the, the skin, all of it. It, that's why this is so important not to make fun of Zelf the white Lamanite because it is kind of a silly story, but the fact that yeah. Joseph Smith and the voice of God is cementing so many of the problems mm. that the church wants to get away from. And just to lay down a little bit of um, sort of certainty on this matter as well as Joseph Fielding Smith in the third volume of doctrines of salvation makes it very clear that all the contemporaries of Joseph Smith believe the hill Cumorah to be in upstate New York, that to be the scene of the final battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites. Um, so, uh, it's not just this that does that. Yeah. Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 3. Joseph and and Smith. Joseph Fielding Smith was a prophet, Mormon prophet, and the son mm -hmm. of a Mormon prophet, Joseph F. Smith, yeah. and the grandson of Hiram Smith, Joseph's brother. Yeah. The other thing I'll just add is you t you talk to Richard Bushman. Just recently, you, you know, you read Richard Bushman's explanation of the Book of Mormon, and even Patrick Mason or Richard Bushman will basically say, the Book of Mormon sounds a lot like 19th century you yeah. know, folk Christianity, Protestant Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you, you basically, you see 19th century Protestant upstate, you know, you know, New England Christianity all throughout the Book of Mormon, which shows that it's kind of just a, a relic of its time. And for me, we, we can't move on past the Zelta White Lamanite story without noting that it also invokes the mound builder myth. Yep. You know, where would Joseph Smith get the idea of a white Lamanite? Why wouldn't it just all Lamanites would be dark dark skinned as as they would have encountered? Well, it's because Joseph Smith was subjected to the mound builder myth, which was that there was a there was a previously existent um, white version of Native Americans that were killed off by the quote savages who were dark, and that's mm -hmm. just Joseph pulling into um, you know his quote prophecies. Uh, you know, folk folk wisdom of the day, and we've got an entire episode or two about the mound builder myth, and on Mormon stories we've had John Hammer and others on to talk about that. Um, that's we can even we can even identify the the prevalent theories of the time that Joseph Smith draws upon, and they're showing up here as well. Yeah, and but the, to those who want to just blame Brigham Young for the curse of Cain, this is just another example that Joseph Smith very much had that doctrine as well. Yeah. Yep. 100%. All right. Well, let's go on to the unfortunate death of David W. Patton. Yeah, this one is one that obviously is not going to rank high on people's list. But on April 17th, 1838, 
Joseph Smith gives a revelation to David W. Patton that he would serve a mission in the next spring. And so this is DNC 114. Verily thus saith the Lord, it is wisdom in my servant David W. Patton that he settle up all his business as soon as he possibly can and make a disposition of his merchandise that he may perform a mission unto me next spring in company with others, even 12 including himself, to testify of my name and bear glad tidings unto the world. And um, unfortunately, David W. Patton dies in uh, October of 1838 and never goes on the mission that God basically reveals to Joseph he's going to go on. And so, you know, it's one of those things where it might not be a big one. It's just, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, well, you're giving a revelation to somebody they're going on a, on a mission the next spring and they're going to die in the fall. It's, it's kind of problematic. Again, I'm surprised that wasn't removed from the Doctrine and Covenants at some point. I am too. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you the really tragic thing about that, just really quickly, yeah. is yeah. that um, where it says, as soon as you possibly can, people will just blame him for not doing it quickly enough, and therefore he died and didn't get to go on a mission. That's how people will square that circle, yeah. which is just tragic. It is. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, like I said, this isn't the biggest one, but it is clearly an example of where there's a revelation that doesn't happen. And so it is a failed revelation even if it's not as important to say you know the temple lot in zion or zion's camp but it's certainly worth noting yeah mm -hmm. all right well let's not belabor that one let's go to the next one which i was going to mention if it wasn't on here this is the failed treasure seeking mission to salem massachusetts right you want to give us that yeah. background mike well this is just one the church needs money and basically they go to um salem and joseph smith basically to, to go back to his treasure digging days, believes that there is treasure that they can find. So it turns into a treasure. Basically, this is a treasure hunting mission. And so Joseph Smith records a revelation from God that basically tells him, yeah, there's there's treasure here and you're going to get it. And um, so this is DNC 111. It says, I, the Lord, your God, am not displeased with you, with your coming this journey, notwithstanding your follies. I have much treasure in the city for you for the benefit of Zion and many people in this city whom I will gather out in due time for the benefit of Zion through your instrumentality. Therefore, it is expedient that you should form acquaintance with the men in the city as you shall be led and as it shall be given you. And it shall come to pass in due time that I will give this city into your hands that you shall have power over it insomuch that they shall not discover your secret parts and its wealth pertaining to gold and silver shall be yours. Concern, concern not yourself about your debts, for I will give you power to pay them. And obviously, they don't find any treasure in Salem. Uh, the city was never put in their hands. This prophecy completely fails. The trip to, to Salem was a failure. And it's funny because the apologeticists, they'll say, well, I think they, they, they converted a few people while they were in Salem to the church. So they'll say, that's the treasure is con conversions. It's like, no, no, no. God is telling Joseph Smith there is gold and silver and it's going to cover all their debts. It absolutely fails. This is another failed revelation that's coming from Joseph Smith in the voice of God. Yeah, don't let people don't let people at the moment with the current SEC situation see this because they'll use it as you say, look, see, God told Joseph Smith to hide his money once. Yeah. He'll do it again. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's it this is one of those I always find it weird when God gets involved in the financial affairs of the church, yes. particularly considering the strong biblical teachings there are towards hoarding wealth and having too much money and that sort of thing and going out without personal script and that sort of thing. Um, I always find it difficult when God gets so involved in essentially what look like to the rest of us money-making schemes. 
I don't know yeah. what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. No, th- this is like if you if you took the word if you took kind of the the voice of God out and just replaced it with like a random uh, guardian spirit, this would read like a a, a Joseph Smith treasure digging run. This is a mm-hmm. treasure digging mission that Joseph Smith is putting in the voice of God, and just like his treasure digging missions with the same rock and a hat, they fail because Joseph Smith can't see anything, and so the fact is he claims to see gold and silver through the voice of God, and it fails, and it's exact like this is. When we talked earlier about how treasure digging kind of works its way through the church, it, this is a good example because this is a treasure digging mission through the voice of God. It fails. I don't. It really is that simple. One of the things I'm confused about, if you if you think about Jesus, who should be the model for everything, what happened when he had a, a fish and some loaves of bread, and there were a bunch of people around him, you know, that that needed to eat. Like it wasn't like, hey, all of you go on an expedition and in this place over there after this big long journey, dig a big hole, go to the basement and you're going to find some stuff. Jesus was able to just multiply the allegedly the fishes and the loaves and everyone ate. Why, why is God not able to replicate that power with Joseph Smith and just somehow whatever bank, whatever's in his bank account, it just triples. Why, why do they have to go on some harebrained treasure-seeking expedition, call it prophecy, and then and then Keystone Cops, the prophecy doesn't even come true? It it doesn't make sense. Just like Jesus was able to perform miracles, why why can't Jesus Jesus help Joseph Smith perform miracles? But Fair Fair has an answer, right, right, Mike? Yeah, I mean, this is just, you know, so, I, you know, so what Fair Mormon does is it, this reminds me a lot of the current apologetics regarding the SEC report with Enzyme Peak. But Fair Mormon's like basically saying it wasn't God's idea, so it wasn't a failed revelation. So they say the trip was apparently made on their own initiative and was not commanded by the Lord. Joseph did not prophesy that they would find money in Salem, but instead made the trip because he became convinced that the story that the treasure existed might be true. Upon failing to locate the money, they spent their time preaching to the people in Salem. And so what they're saying is God never tells Joseph Smith they'd find money in, in Salem. Um, and then what the, I told you earlier, their spin is, well, they, they did convert some people and that's the real treasure. But this is completely an attempt to distract from the very fact that while God might not have sent Joseph to Salem, God absolutely positively says, and, and I'm going to read it, and it's wealth pertaining to gold and silver shall be yours. So to say that he never prophesied they'd find money is absolute BS and fair Mormon knows it unless they've never read the DNC, which I find hard to believe. So this is very similar to how apologists in the church itself are misrepresenting the SEC report today about Ensign Peak because they're trying to reform, reframe the story in a way that doesn't actually match what they're talking about. And the fact that they do this with a straight face, it, it boggles my mind because this is very clearly God saying, not only, you know, not only is God saying you're going to find money, but he's basically telling them we're going to fool the city into giving, giving all their money to you, which, you know, to your point earlier, it's like, you know, I just, I can't imagine Jesus being like, okay, um, you guys are hungry. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to this next city, but don't tell them why we're there because we're going to trick them into giving you all their food. It's just, it's, it's crazy. It really is. I've, I've pulled out my scriptures because, um, I want to refute fair there. They say the Lord is pleased with the journey because he says he's not displeased. So, you know, the Lord is okay with the journey. And he also says that he will reveal where it is his will. You go to verse 7 and verse 8. He says that the place where it is my will that you should tarry for the main shall be signalized unto you by the peace and power of my spirit that shall flow unto you. So clearly when he's there, 
God's going to direct where he ought to be. So I don't get how you can say this isn't a God-ordained and a God-given journey that Joseph was undertaking. Yeah, it, yeah. You know, because I think they, they cling to that first verse where it says, I, the Lord God, am not displeased with your coming this journey. So I think they're saying that because he's saying that, God is not, God is saying, I'm not mad that you came here, but I didn't send you here. And so that's why fair Mormon's just going to You could infer that, but that's not you what God infer said. That. No, it's not. And it's also, <laughs> I mean, fair, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say it straight up. I know people don't like when you use the word lie. Fair Mormon is lying here when they say that Joseph is not prophesying that they're going to find money because it's right there that saying, you're going to get the wealth pertaining to gold and silver shall be yours. Unless fair, fair wants to say gold and silver is not money, which we all know is just crap. So, I mean, fair Mormon here is just absolutely, I mean, I'm, they're being as dishonest as they can be. Um, and, and like they I said, know how to be, yeah, there's dishonest <laughs> as they know how to be. And, um, as the church would use, they're using carefully worded denials to try to avoid, um, stating what's like yeah. literally written in, in the voice of God. So this just shows you to me how apologetics will. And, and, and this is very similar to how the church today is in their SEC report response. They're like basically saying like, did the church, uh, break the law? And they just don't really answer it because they did. <laughs> and, and so if you read the, the church's response to the SEC letter, um, report, and then you actually read the SEC report, you're like, oh my goodness, the church is absolutely just making crap up in the most lawyerly way possible. It's the same thing here. They know what they're saying isn't honest, but they're hoping that people reading it, i.e. church members, won't look at DNC 111 after this and go, what are you talking about? It says right there that they're going to get yeah, gold and silver. Right. It, yeah, yeah. It's just such a bad deflection. The, the only other thing I'll note is that it's a common apologetic to say all right, the prophecy didn't come true, but good things came about anyway. This happened with Zion's camp as well. You'll read um, church uh, leaders, you know, after Joseph Smith died, sort of addressing um, member concern that the Zion camp prophecy didn't come true. And what they'll often say is many of the people that became future leaders of the church were participants in Zion's camp. And so even though the prophecy didn't fail, it was still uh, of the Lord because subsequent, you know, prophets and apostles, um, you know, came out of the failed Zion's camp. And that's just a dodge. Because, you know, you could say that Hitler, and I hate to f violate Godwin's law by invoking Hitler, but you can, and, and Nemo is as a, as a, as a German Germanophile, you may or may not like this analogy, but you you often hear something like, "Well, Hitler built the Autobahn," or "Hitler built the Volkswagen Bug." You would never say that to then say, "Well, good things came from the Holocaust or from World War II." And similarly, it's just a logical fallacy to say, "Well, it doesn't matter that the Zion's camp prophecy didn't come true, or that the you know that that the the silly failed attempt." to, um, you know, uh, to find treasure in Salem, uh, you know, didn't come true, but good things came from it. It's, it's just mm -hmm. a dodge, you know? Well, yeah. Cause that whole Zion's camp thing is like, Oh, you mean to tell me that members of the in group and the very loyal ones right. who went all that way with Joseph Smith yeah. then got rewarded with church callings. Yeah. I'm shocked. Right. Of course they were rewarded <laughs> yep. for their faithfulness well, and, and, yeah, and yeah. devotion. <laughs> it's, a, it's the exact same thing with polygamy. There, there's a podcast that they did and they talk about it where they actually say um, polygamy produced a righteous seed. That's that's the phrasing, right? And they'll say, if you look at the church leadership today, they almost all come from polygamy. And to Nemo's part, it's like, yeah, because they were the people that are related and descended from the inner circle of Mormonism. And the churches is that what's the phrase that the church callings are 90% nepotism and 10% something else. 
So ninety uh, percent relation, ten percent revelation. Yeah, that's what it is. So, so basically, the church—you know—everyone knows that the people that get high up in the church have deep connections to early members because that's how the church is designed um, structurally to to reward. I've done a whole people. video on it. You should go check it yeah. out. What's, yep. it so, What's it called? Nemo. It's uh, it's nepotism amongst Mormon church leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, go watch that because you'll understand that. To Nemo's point, you know, when they say, oh, a lot of great leaders came out of it. Well, of course they did because they were the early inside group. They were Joseph Smith's inner mm -hmm. circle. So, of course, they yeah. were rewarded and their descendants are rewarded because of their name. And so, yeah. yeah, there's no surprise there. All right. Well, we'll we'll have Maven. Maven's already including those in the show notes. Let's go ahead and jump to the next one, which is the failed attempt to sell the Book of Mormon copyright. Yeah, and this is one that got a lot more kind of steam because it was located um, in the Joseph Smith's paper project. And so um, this is similar to the Salem revelation because Joseph Smith is looking for ways to raise money. And he receives this revelation that he can um, sell the copyright for the Book of Mormon in Canada. And this was, like I said, pretty unknown. Uh, they knew of the revelation, but they didn't like have like proof of it. Um, but it was finally confirmed in the Joseph Smith's paper project. Um Originally, it was known because David Whitmer had referenced it as a failed prophecy. And so um, this is part of the actual revelation. And um, Nemo or John, do you want to read that? I'll take that. Go ahead, Nemo. It pleaseth me that Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Knight, Hiram Page, and Josiah Stull shall do my work in this thing, yea, even in securing the copyright, and they shall do it with an eye single to my glory, that it may be the means of bringing souls unto me, salvation through mine only begotten, Behold, I am God. I have spoken it, and it is expedient in me. Wherefore, I say unto you, that ye shall go to Kingston, seeking me continually through mine only begotten. And if ye do this, ye shall have my spirit go with you, and ye shall have an addition of all things which is expedient in me. Amen. And I grant unto my servant a privilege that he may sell a copyright through you, speaking after the manner of men for the four provinces, if the people harden not their hearts against the enticings of my spirit and my word. For behold, it lieth in themselves to their condemnation and their salvation. That's tricky to read with no punctuation. Yeah, well, that's how the, yeah, and that's funny too, because you read that, and that's how the original Book of Mormon would have read when everyone you know talks about how great it reads. It's like, that's not how it read when it was first dictated by Joseph. But yeah, and so this revelation is Joseph Smith um, uh, uh, this is again, God being very concerned with money, which as we talked about is, is kind of odd how specific some of these revelations are about money, but this is Joseph Smith creating himself an out, which is to say, this is going to succeed if the people in Canada basically believe that it's, you know, real. And so the church will then, as Nemo kind of highlighted as he was reading, um, use that loophole to say that it wasn't a failed prophecy because the people in Canada hardened their hearts against it. And so it's interesting, um, to kind of see how, that little loophole, and that's something that you see from um, self-proclaimed prophets, you know, throughout the ages, which is to say, this will happen as long as everybody basically gets on it, board with it. It reminds me okay. when, when I used to give priesthood blessings, and I learned this from other Mormons, I was given, you know, I was taught that if you bless a sick person or even a dying person using the, the Mormon priesthood, using the sacred uh, consecrated oil that you could heal the sick or even raise the dead. But, you know, you only had to do that a couple of times to realize you were about as, uh, you were about as effective as their, as modern medicine, maybe a little bit less effective 
than their their usage of modern medicine. In other words, the no effect, right? Um, mm. Even the placebo effect would would rarely work. And so, um, but what but what you could always do is you could say, you know, pursuant to your righteousness, or if it's God's mm-hmm. will, then you'll be healed. And so it's always it's always questionable to claim power if. Uh, in conjunction with that claimed power, there's always an out. The other thing I just want to mention about this weird selling the Book of Mormon copyright thing is, what in the heck? Can you imagine like the Bible being written in 50 AD or whatever, 50 BC or A, A, what is it, AD? What is the new term for AD? Um, AD, yeah. Yeah. CE? Um, yeah, CE. Like, can you imagine like, hey, you know, hey, Peter, James, and John. Hey, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're kind of short on money. Let's go to Nero or let's go to Caesar and let's sell them the copyright. And then they own the intellectual property for like God's sacred scripture on the earth. Like what are these random Canadian people? What's going to happen if they own the copyright to the Book of Mormon? Are they going to like... Like get a sequel well, to the book. They'll translate it into French for uh, stuff. <laughs> yeah, but the, wow. are they gonna like write a sequel? Are they gonna like, like what are they gonna do with it? Turn it into a franchise? Like why would God <laughs> ever direct his holy scripture to be to have the copyright be sold of it? That to, to God's holy scripture yeah. word. Like I guess the church is glad now it never sold the copyright, but it's just absurd that God would tell Joseph to sell. The ownership of the you know to sell the copyright mm-hmm. to his whole own holy scripture, Mike. Am I am I confused there? No, I mean this is just it. Just is another area where you could show that Joseph Smith was always desperate for money, and he was always using God to basically find a way to kind of you know justify whatever they're doing. And in this case, to your point, like selling the copyright makes no sense, especially if you believe God is powerful. And it just again shows that the God of Mormonism has no power because. Even something as simple as getting a little bit of extra money, God can't come up with a better way outside of sending them to Canada to try to sell the copyright to basically give away the authority of his word to Canada. It makes no sense. And it just shows, especially these early, like this one, like Nemo said, the way it reads, it's just, it, it's just as a mess. Yeah. Mm. And the only thing more silly than the fact that God is telling his one true prophet to sell the rights to his holy scripture is that the prophecy doesn't come true. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the only other... Canadians weren't faithful enough. Yeah. It's the whole yeah. David A. Bednar thing. Do you have faith not to be healed? That's yeah. what we're. That's where we're at now with Mormon healing. They had the faith to earlier. not obtain the copyright, basically. But it's, again, yeah. yeah, it's that whole, is is God really powerful if he's essentially having to say, I will take Zion back by force if they will submit to my will. I will sell the copyright in Canada if they're faithful enough to have it. It's like, just go ahead and do something. Stop relying yeah. on people. Yeah. Just get yeah, I mean, do it. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and not to be that person. I mean, I guess I am going to be that person. But, you know, <laughs> you read the Bible and God is like, I'm displeased with my people. I'm going to flood the whole continent and just destroy and kill innocent children and, and women and, and animals and all that. And mm-hmm. then in, in Mormonism, they need like a couple thousand dollars. And God's like, I got nothing, guys. You know, it's just it doesn't. <laughs> And I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm being facetious. He kills the like, firstborn of all. Yeah. The, of all of Egypt to yeah. get his children out of Egypt, but he he won't perform a minor miracle to get them some cash. Yeah. It's just. It, it's so transparent when you actually like try to compare like how the how God is portrayed in the Bible versus how God actually 
um, operates within the Mormon church. So when I say God, I mean the God of Mormonism. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's one of those things where you read it, like from an outside perspective, and I know this because I have talked to a few people who are not Mormon. I try to tell them this. They laugh at it because they're like, yeah, he's making it up. Like there's no, mm-hmm. there's no way around it. Because not only is the stuff not coming to pass, but when you read it, you can see that all of the things that he's trying to desire or try to get done benefit Joseph Smith. And those are pretty good signs that it's someone not speaking for God. Yeah. And if I can make a a linking point there for a second about how we talk about how it's Jesus is the God of uh, doctrine and covenants. And so Jesus is also the God of the Old Testament, according to Mormonism. Then what you've got is a very good comparison for, well, look at all the things he used to do in the Old Testament to get his way. And now he just stamps his feet and threatens curses, but doesn't actually get involved and do the things that he needs to do to make Joseph Smith successful. So it's it's like you're comparing the same deity to their own standards and you found that in in the Old Testament they were perfectly willing to get involved and smite people. He was willing to stop the moon in the sky to give yeah. people more time to win a battle, right? Yeah. He was willing to part the Red Sea, he was willing to kill children, he was willing to do all sorts of things, flood the entire yeah. earth. And then you've got Joseph Smith needs some cash. This same deity won't step in. Yeah, yeah, it's suspect. So let's look mm-hmm. at how Fair Mormon. I'm so tired of. I mean, honestly, in 2023, I think Fair Mormon. It's safe to say has become irrelevant. So on the one hand, I'm glad, Mike, you're going to help us put together kind of a record of how dumb and uh, unimpressive and uh, dishonest Fair Mormon is. On the other hand, I, I almost I, I've told you this before. They're almost not worth the oxygen and the breath and the time of, of responding to their dumbness, but let's do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, fair Mormon is just, the, the responses just don't work. And we've, we've covered that in all of these topics. I've tried to use fair or the church's essays, but yeah, I just, this one is one I want to point out because this, this ties into something we talked about earlier, so it works out well, but this is from fair Mormon's response to the failed revelation about selling the copyright. And they say, Hiram page, who was one of the individuals sent to Canada laid out the event in a letter in 1848. Page wrote that the revelation Joseph Smith received conditioned success upon whether those individuals in Canada capable of buying the Book of Mormon copyright would have their hearts softened. When unable to sell the copyright, these four men returned to Palmyra. Hiram Page stated he, for the first time, understood how some revelations given to people were not necessarily for their direct benefit. In fact, Hiram Page believed that the revelation was actually fulfilled. And so this is what we were talking about early in the episode, that people who are literally in the middle of these failed revelations can end up believing even stronger because of the fact that they're they're basically looking for reasons to make it work even when they watch it fail. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Nemo, anything you want to say about fair Mormon silliness? No, I think their appeal to someone's opinion on the matter over what God actually said should tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of, I did a, lo- a lot of people have contributed to this, but one of the things I'm most proud of in the modern internet age from 2004 to present is how so many people have, have kind of stood up to the silliness of Fair Mormon and Daniel Peterson and Lewis Midgley and uh, John Lynch and, and, uh, um, Scott Gordon and all the others and just shown how silly fair Mormon is. And I'm proud that they've become irrelevant in 2023. And I don't say that in a mean spirited way. Um, I, I think these were people 
who are trying to do good, just trying to support a church. In some ways, they're victims of a broken system, but mm-hmm. they're they're ad hominem, their mean spiritedness, their viciousness, uh, and they're just simply bad, horrible, illogical, specious arguments. We're an embarrassment to to Mormons and more Mormonism everywhere. And so I'm glad in 2023 they're pretty much gone and irrelevant. Well, you know who they don't embarrass though? They don't embarrass Dale Nate Chokes because if you haven't watched my episode that I did with John, when I sent Dale Nate Chokes uh, a letter full of questions about what could be done about dishonesty amongst church leaders, he sent me a fair Mormon article in return. That's the TLDR of that episode, but yeah. you should check it out. No, so I mean, and, the church yeah. still very much values fair Mormon, even if the rest of us see through it. They do. And that, you know, I we don't need to belabor this, but Daniel C. Peterson has a book called, he's got a book called Offenders for a Word, How Anti-Mormons Play Word Games to Attack the Latter-day Saints. And it's just like, you could read the, the man that brought you horse equals tapir. Yes. And to be fair, Daniel C. Peterson doesn't. You got a point to, to your, you got a point to your taper in, in oh. the back. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. His <laughs> name is Daniel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, Daniel C. Peterson is not fair Mormon, but just the fact that he's sitting there writing a book about how people play word games to attack the church when all he does is twist words in the most ridiculous ways. And, and there, you know, there's a reason why you don't see someone like Daniel C. Peterson go out and do like a public debate with, say, someone like Dan Vogel or John Hamer, because they cannot what they put out there on fair Mormon does not withstand any basic scrutiny. And they know it. And so they, they stay in their bubble and, and they just hope they can keep people in the church who are willing to listen to them for as long as they can. But yeah, it's, yeah. We'll, we'll have an episode on apologetics uh, down the road, which we'll kind of go through that in more detail. Well, rest in peace, fair Mormon. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're down to our last uh, failed prophecy. Pestilence, hail, famine, and earthquake will sweep the wicked away. Take it away, yeah. Mike. And so this kind of um, is from a, a letter in 1833. Um, to N.E. Seton, could be Sexton. I, I think it was hard to like read uh, who it was written to, but this is another prophecy that he's giving um, in the authority of Jesus Christ um, that pestilence, hail, famine, and earthquake, earthquake will sweep the wicked of this generation off the face of the land. And so I don't know if you were, uh, Nemo, want to read kind of the part of the letter where he's giving this revelation or sure. prophecy. I can take that on. And now I am prepared to say by the authority of Jesus Christ that not many years shall pass away before the United States shall present such a scene of bloodshed as has not not a parallel in the history of our nation. Pestilence, hail, famine, and earthquake will sweep the wicked of this generation from off the face of the land, and to open and prepare the way for the return of the lost tribes of Israel from the north country. The people of the Lord, those who have complied with the requirements of the new covenant, have already commenced gathering together to Zion, which is in the state of Missouri. Therefore, I declare unto you the warning which the Lord has commanded to declare unto this generation, remembering that the eyes of my Maker are upon me, and that to him I am accountable for every word I say, wishing nothing worse to my fellow men than their eternal salvation. Therefore... Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Repent ye, repent ye, and embrace the everlasting covenant, and flee to Zion before the overflowing scourge overtake you, for there are those now living upon the earth whose eyes shall not be closed in death until they see all these things which I have spoken fulfilled. 
All right, make sense of that for us, Mike. What did what did Nemo just read us? So this is a prophecy Joseph Smith is giving that within this generation, um, basically all of the wicked will be swept off the earth, um, that there's going to be people that are basically going to live to see the second coming, and that it's going to happen um, from pestilence, hail, famine, and earthquake. It, it, it just didn't happen. I mean, like this is just did not happen. And Joseph Smith says he is saying it with the authority of Jesus Christ um, that it's going to happen within the generation and none of it happens. And so apologists will say the civil war fulfills this, but the civil war is not a natural disaster of, of hail, famine and earthquake and pestilence. It also um, does not lead to the second coming in this generation. This is just another area where it, it just, it didn't happen. Like you, you can't read this. Let's and, go to the, to, let's go to the, let's go to the next slide. Yeah, that's fine. So and how so fair Mormon a, explains yeah. the prophecy. So that's how fair Mormon's going to explain it. And so this is um, what the first part they say, there are two aspects to this, to the prophecy. One destruction, destruction of the wicked. Um, these events were certainly seen by the 19th century saints as fulfilled. They saw the civil war as the culmination of prophecies against wicked people in a wicked nation. And as we mentioned, the prophecy they're referring to is mentioning the bloodshed via pestilence, hail, famine, and earthquake that will sweep the wicked of this generation from off the face of the land, which is not war. It's just not. And, you know, as we talked about, like with Daniel C. Peterson and the word games, this is how apologists change words in order to make a failed prophecy seem plausible. But it doesn't match what Joseph is saying. Um, the natural disasters that Joseph prophesies are to happen in his generation, this generation. So it can't be pushed aside to a future event like, you know, today or, you know, even in the 1900s. Um, and then Fair Mormon continues. They say, those now living are to flee to Zion to avoid the scourge, i.e. the destruction, which certainly bypassed the saints in Utah during the Civil War. Um, the preparation for the return of the 10 tribes. And then it says, the critics wish to say that Joseph prophesied the return of the 10 tribes, but he did not. He prophesied that those living would see those things necessary to prepare the way for the return of the tribes. The prophecy also noted that this gathering was already beginning as those who embraced the covenant gathered to Zion. And, and fair here is pretending that Zion is Utah. So it misses the battles of the civil war, but we all know that Joseph Smith is clear that Zion is in Missouri. So this shows how fair Mormon is just basically trying to tell you that Zion has a completely different meaning. When Joseph gives us revelation a, a whole different geographical location and therefore it matches and it just doesn't like this is just really really poor apologetics where they're just throwing everything against the wall and they're hoping you're dumb enough not to read what joseph smith actually wrote and think for yourself yeah yeah All it right. doesn't matter if the explanation's any good there just has to be one yeah yep, exactly yeah well that's a whole host of failed prophecies that uh, that we've listed today, and again, there may be others that people could point to, but I think we've given a pretty solid list. Yeah, I'm like, we're not going to cover every single one, and I also want to point out that I was trying very hard to only use revelations where we have Joseph Smith or a contemporaneous account where Joseph is saying he's saying it through the voice of God or with the authority of of Jesus Christ, because there are other revelations that are claimed, like people have said that Joseph. Uh, claimed that the Kirtland Safety Society Bank was going to be the biggest bank in the in the country or something like that. But I didn't include that because we don't have an instance where we have a real good contemporaneous account saying it. So we're trying, I was trying to pick ones that I think are, are even apologists couldn't say you're, you're just, you're cherry picking like, you know, third hand accounts or something. And so these are very solid revelations that Joseph Smith is making and they they fail. And, and as we talked about in the Bible, 
one failed revelation and you do not speak for God. And yet we have a whole bunch of them here. So I guess we're not to fear Joseph Smith is, is what that the Bible is leading us to think. And that's good. Cause I don't want to fear anybody, uh, you know, in a godly sense. Um, I think, I think a flip of this episode would be interesting kind of as a gauntlet or as a challenge. I would love to see faithful Mormons, apologetic Mormons come up with an episode on the fulfilled prophecies of Joseph Smith. And I guess the only criteria that I would want to put forward is it's got to be a prophecy that like, you know, people wouldn't have expected that, that wouldn't have naturally come true anyway, that didn't have any scripture editing or changing along the way, or, or wasn't like we talked about last episode backdated. And we've already addressed the civil war quote prophecy in a previous episode as, as not, as not being really an example of anything prophetical. Is that right, Mike? Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, like, um, I've read lists before where they talk about that and they'll have the civil war or they'll say, Joseph will be spoken of for good or evil. We talked about how that was written after that had already happened. Um, or, you know, wars and rumors of wars, all of these different things. But yeah, when you really earthquakes, you know, that like stuff that you could prophesy, you know, for any given time from any, you know, given area of the world. Um, so yeah, I would love to see it because I've read some of those lists before when you read it, you're like, that's for a lot of times it'll be a prophecy about something and they'll just apply some, you know, kind of like we talked about with COVID where they'll say, Oh, the next, um, general conference is going to be unlike any other. And then COVID happens and they're like, that was Russell Nelson prophesying of COVID. It's like, no, he was just talking right. about the, the 200th anniversary of the first vision. And so if you don't redefine revelation and, and you, you make it specific, you're not going to find much. And, and, and so Joseph Smith's track record, in my opinion, is no better than literally anyone else who makes predictions, um, you know, about stuff they, they can't possibly know. Yeah. And we all know that, that, the Doctrine and Covenants itself declares Joseph Smith a prophet, seer, revelator, and uh, a, tra a, a translator. And so you have to kind of ask yourself, we kind of showed through all, you know, his, all our episodes on translation that he pretty much failed every single attempt he made at translation, Book of Mormon, Book of Abraham, you know, Book of Moses, uh, the New Testament, you know, revisions of the of the Bible and the Kinderhook plates. It's like fail, 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 fail. Not a translator, and his prophecies and revelations are not coming true. And then seership, you know, whatever that means. Uh, so Nemo, any final words you want to share before we give Mike the concluding slide? Um, just that I think it's really important that you take this on board. Those that are watching, along with the other attributes that joseph smith claimed to have i think that is really important um and it's also very important for you if i wanted to go and read these scriptures yourselves we've put them on the screen but read it yourself have a look check it all out have a look at what fair said you know don't take our word for it necessarily go do your own research and i think you'll come to the same conclusion or i would hope that that we've done our research well enough that you'll you'll see that it's solid and if any of you want to uh tell us we're wrong, please go into the comments on YouTube or on Facebook and tell us the prophecies you're aware of or tell us where we got mm -hmm. something wrong. Because if we've made any yeah. any mistakes in this series, unlike uh, Down H. Oaks or the church, we're willing to apologize and admit it and correct it. So Mike, why don't you take us through the, follow the, the final slide? Yeah, and the final slide, you know, it's just kind of the last, this episode and our last episode, just covering Joseph's revelations. And it's just a point 
which we just said we, we couldn't cover every single one of them. Um, but just hopefully the patterns from last week uh, or our last episode on Revelation and then from today on the failed revelations, you know, it gives you a clear way to look at, you know, not just why they were written, but like the context that Joseph was writing them in and, and the needs that were being served by them. Um, and just to note that, you know, Joseph was using revelations in a lot of different ways, um, whether it was to get out of a t- tough situation, to reestablish credibility, um, to adjust to newer theologies, or as we mentioned, to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do, which we talked about today was Zion's camp. And so as we discussed, you know, in our first episode on, on kind of backdating revelation, it's striking that Joseph's revelations cannot seem to predict the future. And in the few instances where he tries to do so, whether it's building a temple in Missouri or taking Zion by power, he fails. And, um, you know, the thing is, we're told one failed revelation makes you a false prophet. And Joseph Smith gives us a bunch of them throughout his, you know, fairly short time as, as the leader of the Mormon church. And, you know, it's just, you know, as we've talked about in these episodes, if you view them the same way you would view any other religious leader, you would look at it and go, yeah, that person absolutely is not a prophet because they keep getting it wrong over and over again. And you have to be willing to apply consistent um, kind of logical um, applications of, of these these instances to to Mormonism. And you cannot rely on special pleading to say, well, yeah, David Crush was clearly making it up, but Joseph Smith has it right um, because we have a lot of records. As Nemo said, don't don't trust what we're saying. You know, you could read um, the page on, on LDSDiscussions.com. There's links to Fair Mormon's response. There's links to the church's response. You can read their response and see if they make sense. And um, I just say, I think you get to a point where it's like, as we've said in previous episodes, if you had a watch and the watch was wrong four times, five times, would you keep using that watch or would you say, yeah, this watch clearly does not do what it's supposed to. And with Joseph Smith, it's the same thing. If he can't get it right, then does he speak for God? And if he doesn't speak for God, what, what really is he providing to, to anyone? All right. The problem is a broken watch is right twice a day. And so you get the slight incidences where someone will say something slightly profound or a prophet will say something that someone finds slightly helpful and they'll just cling to that. And I think that's how people do stay involved, even in in, while confronting a lot of these problems, historical and current. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, the truth is most people stay Mormon or religious because of community ties, because of family ties, because it makes them feel happier, makes them feel like their life has purpose or meaning, um, or they've had emotional experiences that they've interpreted to mean that the church is true. And, and ultimately, it's because they feel like the church works for them. And so it makes sense that that in spite of the evidence, people retain their faith. It's because you know humanity hasn't figured out a better way to make people happy in a way that would make people want to let go of their faith and uh, and follow something better. So on, and in some sense, it's humanity's job to figure out how to bring people meaning and joy and fulfillment and community and resolutions about the afterlife. Or it doesn't matter what the evidence shows; people are gonna people are gonna stick with what's working. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, all right. So that concludes uh, thir- episode thirty-seven of the LDS discussion series. Uh, Mike, we can't thank you enough for uh, all your amazing work. Uh, you're a well, legend and we're grateful for you. Um, and uh, yeah. thank you. Well, yeah, thanks to everyone who's stuck with the series. And I think our next episode is gonna be a lot of fun because it's gonna really take us from um, Joseph Smith to the present day. So we're gonna look at John Taylor's revelation on polygamy. We're gonna look at a couple of Russell Nelson's revelations um, since he's become prophet. And 
kind of see if we can get a better understanding of what a prophet is and where they're pulling um, inspiration or revelation from. And I think that next week's episode will be a little bit of a turn from looking at the like the very founding of the church to giving us more of a modern perspective. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to kind of moving into the modern day on this stuff. Excellent. Thanks, Mike. And Nemo, it's always Thank great you. to have you. We're, uh, yeah. We celebrate you, who you are, and your channel, Nemo the Mormon. And we hope everyone will subscribe to Mormon Stories Podcast on YouTube and on Facebook for the algorithms and, and to help us grow. And we also hope people will follow Nemo the Mormon channel and subscribe and donate to you. Yeah, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be here. All right. All right, everyone. Thanks, Nemo. And, uh, and please, uh, if you value this content with LDS discussions, we, we, uh, we want to pay Nemo for his support. And uh, just recently, we, we were able to twist Mike's arm and convince him to let us give him some honorariums for his amazing work. So if you value this content, if you want to see it continue, if you want to show Mike your appreciation, uh, please give us, uh, <coughs> please con consider donating to Mormon Stories podcast. You can go to mormonstories.org, click on the donate button, become a monthly donor. And we'll not only finish out this series on LDS discussions, but we'll figure out how to parlay Mike and Nemo's brilliance into possible future series or future oh, yeah. episodes as well. How does that sound, Nemo? Uh, oh, yeah. I've, I've got some ideas. Yeah, are, yeah. are you up for more, Mike? I mean, maybe not with Nemo, but maybe for something else. Yeah, because Nemo's a bit of a pain, right? He's a bit of a... He is. Yeah. Ever since That's I met bad. him, he's been nothing nothing but trouble. You guys should see the the messages he sends uh, when we're not recording. They are some of the most uh, rude, <laughs> slanderous... You, you just you have no idea how British people work until you have to talk to them behind the scenes. Nemo, you're but. a scoundrel. I had no idea you were a scoundrel, Nemo. Uh, I just I have to deal with ungrateful colonials all day. So yeah, yeah I've got to. Yeah, no, I get it. Nemo, Nemo, Nemo has been awesome, and he's been just so much fun to get to know. And you know, um, I've said it before, but I, you know, one of the reasons that Nemo is so nice to work with is that he doesn't. He takes an approach that I like to take, which is you know the fact that we're trying to deal with this as gentle as we can, and we're not trying to just like firebomb the crap out of everything. And so I, I always appreciate that because I think it it's hard enough to learn this stuff as it is. And so to have uh, outlets that are more gentle with you, I think is helpful just because like I said, we've all been there where you find the stuff out and it sucks. And so if you can have people that can kind of maybe guide you through it a little bit uh, less emotionally, it can help. I know we don't always succeed there, but yeah. anyways, Nemo, I take, I retract my criticisms of Nemo. He's actually very fun to work with. <laughs> he's, he's a fan of my cold British heart is what he's saying. Exactly. I do. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks gentlemen. We also want to thank Maven for thank all her work behind the scenes of making all this possible. Gerardo for the thumbnails and uh, Julia for the shorts and Brooklyn for the video editing. There's a whole team of, of a production team here at Mormon Stories, along with our board of directors, Clint Martin and Carrie Whitbeck. A lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes to keep this organization alive and to allow us to keep doing what we do. So thanks to everyone who supports us. Please support us if you can. And uh, we love you guys. Be good to each other. Be kind to each other. And we'll see you all again soon on another episode of Mormon Stories and on uh, LDS Discussions. Take care, everybody.